optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just sitting in a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where my dog is yawning, and it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers of various types, from military to entertainment to academia to sports, chess, everything in between, and tease out the routines, habits, favorite books, etc., that you can use. And this episode, we have Luis von An, or Luis von An, V-O-N-A-H-N, who is an entrepreneur and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He is known for inventing CAPTCHAs, and we'll get into that, being a MacArthur Fellow, which is often nicknamed the Genius Grant, and selling two companies to Google in his 20s. Luis has been named one of the 10 most brilliant scientists by Popular Science Magazine, one of the 50 best brains in science by Discover, one of the top young innovators under 35 by the MIT Technology Review, and one of the 100 most innovative people in business by Fast Company Magazine. He has many things, many interests that keep him busy, but the primary is Duolingo. 
Luis is currently the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo, a language learning platform created to bring free language learning to the world. They have more than 100 million users, including yours truly, and that makes it the most popular way to learn languages in the world. And it is the most downloaded app in the education category on both iTunes, where it has a five-star average and more than 3,300 reviews, and Google Play. I first met Luis as an early investor in Duolingo. I tracked them down, which was very hard. I tracked Luis and his co-founder Severin down after you guys, my fans, actually told me I had to see it. It was in beta at the time, and via Twitter and Facebook, you guys informed me. I reached out to them. That's how that came together, and every time I meet Luis, I learn something new. And certainly, I hope you will learn a lot in this episode. We talk about his favorite books and resources he'd recommend to entrepreneurs, language learning tips, the very clever way he caught cheating students at Carnegie Mellon, which is a great story, early mentors and key lessons learned, the story of building and selling companies like Recaptcha, how to recruit and vet technical talent, uh, the most surprising sources of users for Duolingo, and it goes on and on. So we talk about quite a lot. Please say hello to Luis on Twitter at Luis von An, L-U-I-S-V-O-N-A-H-N. Say hi on the interwebs and please Enjoy my conversation with Luis. Luis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. And I thought we could start where a lot of people start in the morning, which is breakfast. You mentioned this briefly when we were doing a sound check. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a Greek yogurt. And you you added some context. Is that the you've had the same thing for breakfast for the last year? Yeah, possibly two or three years. It's the identical Greek yogurt. It's the Faye Greek yogurt, the one that you have to combine the fruit, but the spoon never fits in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one. And do you do you have meals that you repeat for lunch and dinner? I mean, are you do you have you standardized your daily routine in other ways besides breakfast? Not not that well. I uh, breakfast is pretty standardized. My my <laughs> my my lunch is pretty different every day. We we get free lunch uh, uh, at Duolingo, and I it just I eat that. Got it. Now standardized the word makes me think of testing, and when I think of testing, I actually got pinged by a former student of yours, and the student said, "Ask him to explain how he catch he how he catched." Boy, here we go. I need to. <laughs> study English. What, was he ca- him or was it you? Catched. Uh, yeah, catched. No, I, I said this, unfortunately. Uh, caught cheaters in your one of your classes at Carnegie Mellon. And I was hoping maybe you could explain how that went. Yeah, I did that. I did that quite a bit. Um, so I, I used to teach this class. Uh, I'm on leave. I'm, I'm a professor, but I'm on leave. Um, I used to teach this class called Great Theoretical Ideas in Computer Science, which is... Um, kind of the, the hardest class most people have ever taken in their lives. Um, and it's, it's basically discrete math and, and, and it's pretty hard. Now, a lot of people used to cheat. It's, it's a large class. It's about 200 kids. Uh, a lot of people used to cheat in, in different ways. And uh, I started becoming, uh, I, I started becoming really obsessed with catching people cheating. I, I, it was, it was, I, I didn't even do anything bad to them after I caught them cheating. It was more like a a fun game for me. Right. Um, So for example, one of the things they couldn't do is they, they, some of the assignments I said, it is against the class policy to Google. Um, um, uh, Now you can think what you want about that policy. I don't think it's that great of a policy, but that's a policy that I inherited. Uh, That class has always basically said, you cannot Google for assignment solutions. Uh, 
so one of the things I did was um, I, uh, I I would, you know, sometimes I would assign um, homework and I would actually seed the answers to some of the things in, in websites that were crawled by Google, but that I owned. Uh, and I could tell people's IP addresses and, and everything. I, I would catch people cheating that way. I basically set up honeypots for people to cheat. And, and, you know, you could say that's entrapment, but that's, that's what I did. Do you recall any examples offhand? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, well, of the exact websites, I, I don't know where they yeah, are. Or the terms, I mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, one of them was, um, uh, there was, there was one that was called, uh, Girama Christos puzzle. It's it's made up, but I, I made that word up beforehand. I made sure there was no no such thing on Google, and I I, I made a website that had the right solution, but it, it it recorded everybody's IP address. And at CMU, you can figure out you know their dorm from their IP address, so I could figure out which which person was actually checking. Turns out that time out of the two hundred students, about forty Googled for the answer, um, and and that that was fun. Uh, I, I used to do all kinds of things like that. And then the students were pretty, um, they were, they were all usually scared of, of almost everything being a trick. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would do that in the first one or two assignments. And then afterwards they would, they would learn not to, not to cheat. <laughs> so, so the, the story, the progression I've heard is that you would, uh, you would bring up slides silently. Did you do this? Or it was like, a, sc- like a, a screenshot of whatever it is, the Glorblar problem or whatever circled, then a screenshot of the, your, like your, the who is for the domain site or the domain yep. that people would go to with your name circled since you own it. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's when you could see the whole class. You could, you could see their faces change. It was, it, it was pretty fun. I just, <laughs> <laughs> now, but you didn't have to actually hunt down each identity, right? I mean, you did you offer them a choice? I mean, tell me if this is true. So, the 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 story, the lore is that you would you offered them the option of confessing and take a zero for the homework. Otherwise, they would get reported. Or is that not, or is it not? Is it who not? have you who have you been talking to? <laughs> <laughs> that that was the case. That that was exactly the case because it, it took a little bit of effort to go and figure out who was who. Uh, so I would just I would say if you if you just confess, you get a zero on the assignment, and and all kinds of people confess. I even had some people confess that didn't even actually do anything. They just said, well, you know, I don't know what the hell I was doing, so I'm just going to throw my name in there. I'd rather take a zero on the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> so if we rewind the clock. So that's as a professor. When did you become, at what age did you become a professor at Carnegie Mellon? Um, I was probably 25. 25. Yeah. And was it clear that you were going to be involved with computer science from a very young age? Could you describe for people where you grew up a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, sure. I I grew up in in Guatemala, uh, which is, uh, by the way, that's not where they keep the prisoners. That's Guantanamo. Do you uh, get that a lot? I get that a lot. It's like, is that where they keep the prisoners? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it's also not where they invented, invented the avocado sauce. That's guacamole. Uh, different. Um, so the, uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in Guatemala. Uh, I, I started liking computers at, at about age eight. My, my mom, I, I really wanted a Nintendo because everybody wanted a Nintendo or, or my friends all had Nintendos. And, and I told my mom, but my mom instead got me a Commodore 64. Computer. Oh, I, I remember Commodore 64. Yeah. So a lot of spy me. hunter on Commodore 64. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I played a lot of games there. Uh, but at first, when I first got it, I was pretty pissed off because I thought, man, I wanted a Nintendo. 
Um, but instead she got me that and she said, well, you figure that out. Uh, and so I, uh, I had to figure out how to use the computer to play games. Um, and then I started trying to figure out, uh, you know, because she only would buy me a couple of games, um, a year and I would get bored of them. I started trying to figure out how to get more and more games. And, you know, the best way to do that was basically to copy them from other people. Uh, so I started doing that, uh, at a young age. Um, I, I don't, I think the statute of limitations has passed by now, but I was basically <laughs> pirating games and in large scale in Guatemala city is basically what I was doing. And what did you, what did you learn in those early days of copying games that, that helped you later or gave you an indication that you had a, a proclivity for com- using computers and computer science? I, I was pretty good at, I mean, I, you know, most of these things had some sort of copy protection. Uh, usually it was like hidden files or something that if you just knew how to list a directory, uh, with, by, by showing the hidden files, you could see them. Uh, so it was, it was not that hard, but basically I, I started getting good at, at using computers and I was usually the better kid in my class at anything having to do with computers. And I, I think that's kind of what got me going. When did you leave Guatemala? I was 17. I had just turned 17. I came here for college. Um, I, I wanted, I wanted to become a math major. And it turns out in this little country, there was no way to become a math major. Uh, and so I left for college. Um, I thought I would return four years later, but then I, I started liking it here. The whole not, uh, not being scared of kidnappings, et cetera. That was pretty nice. <laughs> the, the luxuries, the luxuries enjoy. of life, like, uh, you know, electricity reliably. Uh, all that stuff was nice. So I, I kind of stuck around. And, uh, what did your parents do? And what was your, what was your, uh, upbringing? Like what were your parents? Yeah, my, my parents were both doctors, medical doctors, but my mother, um, she was a doctor, but she only practiced for like six months. Um, after that, she inherited a candy factory from her mother. So my mother owned a candy factory. Uh, and that, that's what she did. And it was pretty awesome because I, I grew up basically in a candy factory. <laughs> so it's like uh, there were, I assume, no Oompa Loompas or any some such Willy Wonka elevators, which which would be nice. But like you said, electricity not reliable. So probably- <laughs> you no, know, there was none of that. But there were there were huge machines that that made humongous pieces of candy that had to be cut off, and it was it was fun. I didn't I didn't really like it because I I, ate, I guess I ate way too much of it at first, and then I stopped liking it. Uh, but it was really fun to take the machines apart. And I guess people didn't like that, but I, it was fun to take the machines apart. So you worked on taking the machines apart. I, I, wor- I, I did not work on putting them back together because I had no idea how to do that. But you took uh, them apart. I did. <laughs> Must have been a real crowd pleaser with the employees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, did, your, did your parents do anything in particular in, in terms of parenting style or interacting with you that you could see doing with your own kids at some point? Uh, my mom was great. I mean, she was, she really, uh, you know, one of the things she did was she always um, told me, you know, I've heard, I've read this after the fact, but I noticed she did it. Um, she always told me, you know, when, when you congratulate your kids, you always tell them, oh, you're so smart. She, she would say that I was smart every now and then, but most of the time she would say something like, oh, you worked hard on that. Right. And that, uh, she did that a lot. And I guess that's probably why I'm now a workaholic. Uh, but that, yeah, she did that a lot. So, so that I think I want to say Carol Dweck, uh, I might be getting this researcher's name wrong, wrote a book called Mindset about this, how, uh-huh. uh, if kids believe that their intelligence is a fixed trait and they're told you're so smart, you're so smart that when they fail, 
they assume it is a, a, an unfixable problem, right? And right. then when you're told right. you worked really hard, congratulations, then you become more resilient and adaptable when facing setbacks and whatnot. Uh, what, uh, what did your path look like through college and then immediately after graduation? Where did you go undergraduate? I went to Duke. Um, I, I, I had never been to North Carolina before I showed up, uh, I it was I, I did not really realize that North Carolina was the South. Uh, but, <laughs> it does have it North in the name. It right? does have North in the name. <laughs> name, but uh, yeah, I, it, you know, I, the first day I showed up, I I, I went to McDonald's because you know I had heard a lot. I, well, I mean, we have McDonald's in Guatemala, but I, it was a restaurant I knew, so I went to McDonald's and I could not. I, I spoke English, uh, but I could not understand the person uh, asking me what I wanted to order. Uh, that the, the Southern accent was way way too thick for me. Um, but I was, I was a Duke. I, I was there. I, I studied computer science. Um, uh, I loved it. I loved basketball while I was there for exactly four years. And then the day after I graduated, I stopped liking it, but, but I, I loved it while I was there. That's the religion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then I, then I, then I went to get a PhD in computer science at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I, I went to Carnegie Mellon cause of my PhD advisor, um, who's a guy named Manuel Blum, who, is you know many people consider him the father of cryptography, uh, you know like encryption and all that all that stuff. He yeah, so that uh, he, he's he's amazing. So I, I came to Carnegie Mellon to study computer science. Where where is uh, is Manuel Bloom originally from the U.S. or is he from outside of the U.S.? He was born in Venezuela, but he lived there for like a year, and then he grew up in New York City. What did you learn from him? Are there any lessons in particular, or or or? principles or takeaways that you've carried with you or that you can remember from working with him? Yeah, I learned, I learned a lot from him. I mean, he's, he's very funny. He's, he's, um, he's an older man now. I mean, he's, um, he, he's in his late seventies. Um, and he's, he, he always, uh, you know, by when I met him, which was like 15 years ago, I guess I was, he was in his sixties, but, um, he always acted way older than he actually was. Um, <laughs> he just acted, uh, acted as if he forgot everything. He he really was. He really acted like he forgot a lot of things. Meaning, um, like an absent-minded doc yeah, from Back but, to the Future type of person. Or? Yeah, but I think it was it was a bit of an act. Um, because because at first, so you know, um, at first, the the way the way he treats his PhD students is he meets with them once a week and they have to like explain to him what they're doing. Uh, so I had to explain to him what I was working on, which at the time, by the way, what I was working on was this thing that became very popular was this uh, captchas the these distorted characters that you have to type all over the internet um to prove you're uh, that, not a robot of some type right this is very annoying um uh, that was that was the thing i was working on um and i had to explain it to him but uh it was very funny because usually i would start explaining something and he, you know in the first sentence he would say i don't understand what you're saying <laughs> and then i would try to find another way of saying it and and the whole hour would pass and i i was not I, I, w- I could not get past the first sentence. And he would say, well, the hour's over. Let's meet next week. And this happened for like, uh, this must have happened for months. Uh, and at, at some point I started thinking, I don't understand why people think this guy's so smart. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's one, like, for example, you know, there's no such thing as a, the Nobel Prize in computer science because I guess there was no computers when Nobel was around. Uh, so there's a, there's a thing called the Turing Award and, and he, he won the Turing Award. So he's like basically won the Nobel Prize for computer science. Um, and, and I just could not understand how people thought this guy was smart. Um, but it turns out later, now I understand this is basically just an act. I mean, it, essentially I was being unclear about what I was saying 
And I did not fully understand what I was trying to explain to him. And he would just, he was just trying to drill deeper and deeper and deeper until I realized every time that I actually, there was something that I didn't have clear in my mind. Hmm. And that's something that, you know, he just, he really taught me how to think deeply about things. Um, and, and I think that's something that I just, I had I have not forgotten. And, and, and when you understand something really, really deeply, you can explain it, explain it in a really uh, short way usually. Uh, and that's, that, that's great. Let's, uh, part of the reason, and particularly since I'm incompetent when it comes to physics, uh, but, uh, I've always had a lot of respect for teachers who can develop a style like that of the late Richard Feynman, right? Being right. able to take very, uh, perceived as complex concepts in theoretical or applied physics and explaining them using, say, an apple and a pencil to a, a third grader and being able to have them get it, not just get it, but remember it. Yeah, I think I think that's true understanding. I think when you're able to explain something so simply that almost anybody can understand it, that means you really understand it. And for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a little hard to find. I, I have found it on YouTube before. I'm sure you can find it on some Chinese version of YouTube somewhere. But the, <laughs> the, uh, the joy of finding things out, which was a Nova program. It's not that long, which is an interview of Richard Feynman about, uh, his experience with his father, among other things, and how his father taught him to explore the world. Really fascinating. Uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned CAPTCHA. Uh, could you, Walk us through, or not walk us through, but what were the milestones for CAPTCHA and what ended up happening to it? Sure. So that that was um uh, so so the way this whole thing got started, uh, uh, it was about the year two thousand. I had just started my PhD at Carnegie Mellon. I was looking for a PhD thesis project. I mean, I had just started and I was looking for something. I really didn't have a research project. And this guy, um, uh, uh, a pretty awesome guy. His name is Uri Manber. He was the chief scientist at Yahoo. He now works at Google. Uh, but at the time, he was the chief scientist at Yahoo. And Yahoo at the time, in the year 2000, was really the, the biggest thing in the world. Sure. Udi, um, Udi Manber? Manber. How do you spell it? M-A-N-B-E-R. Got it. Uh, he, he came to Carnegie Mellon to give a talk about 10 open problems that Yahoo did not really know how to solve. And I th- my guess is he was, this was a recruiting talk. Now that I understand how the world <laughs> operates, <laughs> my guess is he was coming to recruit engineers of some sort. But, you know, he gave a talk about 10 problems that they didn't really know how to, uh, how to solve. Um, and, uh, there were a bunch of different problems there. I went home and I tried to, you know, I, I said, well, I'll try to figure out how to solve all of these. Um, I was, uh, I had no idea how to solve any of them, uh, except for one. And I, I didn't really know how to solve it, but I thought, mm, I could probably come up with something for that. And the problem that he, that he had that they didn't know how to solve is that at the time they had a free email service. I guess they still do. Um, where you, uh, the, the problem they were having is that people were writing bots to sign up for millions of email accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they were, that's what they were trying to do, uh, or that's what they were doing. And then the people at Yahoo did not know how to stop this. They, they were trying all kinds of things and, Whatever they did, uh, the people who wrote the bots would kind of one-up them. And so uh, I kind of thought about it. I thought about it with my PhD advisor, Manuel, and together uh, we came up with this this solution, which is why don't we test whether the thing that's trying to sign up is a human or a computer that's trying to sign up for millions of accounts. Uh, and, and we came up with this idea of a test. Uh, and the test is basically just giving some distorted characters and having the, the entity read it. And it turns out humans can read these pretty well, whereas computers can't, can't read it as well. 
Uh, and that, that, that was it. That's, um, uh, it took, it took a few months to, to come up with this idea. Then we developed it and then, uh, we showed it to him, uh, to Uri member. Uh, and he had it running on Yahoo, uh, you know, like two weeks later, which wow, I also now fast. in retrospect realize how big of a problem this must have been for them. <laughs> yeah, that's a miracle for that to be implemented. <laughs> because so it's a miracle for any large company to do anything in two weeks. Uh, but he had it running pretty quickly after that. Um, and, and from then on, every other website started using these. Um, and so, so that, that happened. Um, then, uh, by, uh, this, this was still the year about 2000, by the year about 2005, uh, I had gone on to work on other things. Um, but by then essentially every single website was using it. And, uh, at some point I did a little back of the envelope calculation about how, um, how many, how many of these were typed by people around the world? Um, and it turns out it was, a, it was, a, the, the number I came up with was about 200 million. So about 200 million times a day, somebody would type one of these captures. Uh, and that's when I, that's when I started thinking, I, I wonder if we can you do the, something with this time, because the thing is, you know, each time you type one of these, uh, not only are they annoying, but also they waste about 10 seconds of your time. And if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get the humanity as a whole is wasting like 500,000 hours every day typing these annoying captures. So I started thinking, you know, can we do something? I, I started feeling bad, first of all, because it's like 500,000 hours and it's kind of my fault. Um, so I started feeling bad and I started thinking, you know, can we do something good with this or, or useful? And that's when I came up with the idea. It's kind of the, the second round of captures. It's a system called reCAPTCHA, which the idea is that we're, um, and not only are people authenticating them, themselves as a human as they're, as they're typing these, but they're also helping to digitize books. Um, and, and the way that works is that, okay, so first of all, digitizing books, there's, uh, so Google, for example, is digitizing all the world's books or ha- was digitizing all the world's books where the idea is you start with a physical book and you scan it. Now, scanning a book, uh, literally what it consists of is uh, sending the book to India and somebody in India taking a digital photograph of every page of the book. That's literally what scanning a book is. Um, now, the problem is that the next step is the pro- of the process, the computer needs to be able to decipher all of the words in these pictures of, of the pages. Uh, but the computers can't do that very well or not as accurately as humans. So what we do is we take all of the words that the computer cannot recognize uh, in, in, in these scans and we get people to read them for us while they're typing captures on the Internet. So that's the idea of recapture. That as people are, are typing these captures, they're also helping to digitize books. And what uh, from the conception and development of recapture uh, to its, it was, uh, the technology was acquired or licensed. What was the ultimate? Uh, uh, Recaptcha turned into a company. So it was a, it was a, it was a company that what we were doing. So we, 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 it, for, at first this was a Carnegie Mellon. I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon and it was, this was research project Carnegie Mellon. But then at some point we realized that we could digitize a lot of things, you know, in a large scale because of what happened is, um, we, so we launched this Recaptcha service pretty quickly. Facebook. Uh, started using it. Um, so basically anybody who signed up for Facebook was helping us digitize one word out of something. Um, and then who, who provided the books? Was that right? That so business? at first, yeah. at first nobody was providing the books really. We just have had kind of some, some small amount of scans that we had gotten from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, I, I was giving a talk somewhere and in the audience was the, uh, CTO of the New York Times. Mm. He said, Hey, uh, we have, archives of the New York Times. We have 130 years of New York Times archives that uh, we have 
scanned, but we just cannot finish the digitization process because uh, the scans are not very good. Uh, so maybe you can do this for us. Uh, and I said, sure. So pretty soon we started digitizing the New York Times uh, and started charging them for doing that. And that was uh, at that point, we had to leave the university because we were doing apparently you cannot do work for hire inside a nonprofit university. Who knew? Huh. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so we had to we formed the company mainly because the New York Times wanted to pay us to digitize their archive, and so they started paying us. Um, they were paying us quite a bit. Um, they were paying us uh, it's about fifty thousand dollars per year of content. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so one hundred yeah one hundred thirty years one hundred thirty years yeah so so that that was we didn't need a any valuable contract <laughs> right we didn't need any venture funding or anything that's how we spun it out into a company and we were in the middle of that contract and we were going at it. But at some point, Google was having the exact same problem with their book digitization process that it, it you know, their the computers were not as accurate um, as humans. So they kind of approached us and, and we ended up deciding to sell the company to them. Question on Carnegie Mellon and yeah. uh, technology transfer. So for those people who are not familiar, if you were to go to, say, a place like MIT or uh, many, many universities, if you develop, and, and I'm sure this varies in the fine print, but if you are a faculty member or maybe even a student and you develop technology at the university, in, am I correct in saying that in some cases that is the intellectual property of the university? How did you that nav- is correct. So how That's- did you navigate that with yeah. Carnegie Mellon? So most universities, most universities, what happens is, uh, if you are an employee of the university, uh, or if you're a student and you are funded uh, somehow through the university, so for example, PhD students that are funded through through grants or something, uh, then the university can take or, or can t- can if they choose so take ownership of your intellectual property. Uh, and usually, also universities have a some sort of licensing agreement in case you want to form a company out of a university. So, I mean, this is actually what happened with Google. Google was developed inside Stanford, uh, and there's many other you know companies like that. And usually, there's some sort of licensing agreement where uh, if you start a company, the university now owns a certain fraction of your company, and that varies per university. And exactly the terms of this vary per university. At Carnegie Mellon, it's pretty nice. Uh, it is. Um, What's nice about it is that it's it's really simple. It's Carnegie Mellon owns five percent of your company. Uh, period. Now that if you raise funding, their their ownership dilutes. But at the time of company formation, if you're if you're taking technology out of the university, they own five percent of the company, mm-hmm. and that's it. Uh, and that's what, what's nice about that is you don't have to fuss with them. I mean, many others have some sort of like, you know. Uh, negotiation or variable amount depending on milestones or whatever, and you end up having to negotiate all kinds of things. But here, it's just a standard thing. Very simple. Yep. So, so Carnegie Mellon owned five percent of Recaptcha. That's what happened. And looking looking back at, uh, I want to say Yuri, but I guess it's Uri's presentation and the ten open problems and how you recognized it later in retrospect as a recruiting trip, most likely. Uh, for engineers, have have you developed a particular approach, or what is your approach for recruiting engineers for your startups? Like, for instance, in the in the current day, or when you were just putting together the initial team for Duolingo, how do you how do you recruit and vet engineers? Yeah, that was so. 
the initial team was actually relatively easy at Duolingo. I basically took, because I was a professor and essentially I was teaching a class that every single student had to take in computer science. So I pretty much knew who the you, best students... You got to see all the fresh meat coming in. I, I knew who the best students are were in the whole university. I mean, I knew that. Uh, so it was relatively simple at the beginning. I essentially just emailed, you know, my top 10 that I knew. Uh, and that was it. And, you know, some of them already had jobs. Um, and some of them were very interested and I hired some of them. Uh, but those I didn't even have to interview because I knew them. I, I mean, I had taught them and I knew how good they were. Um, that things changed after that. Uh, now that we have to hire more. Now with Dueling, we have about 60 people. Um, and, uh, you know, what we do, we, we go to universities, we, we recruit from, uh, usually kind of East Coast universities. So MIT, Harvard, Princeton, CMU, et cetera. Um, we usually go there, we give a talk, uh, and then we what type get a, of, what type of talk? Usually, uh, you know, technical, but entertaining. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think what's most useful is showing that you have really difficult problems. That is what that is what works the best. So because difficult problems attract good people. Yeah, difficult problems. They're like, oh, I'm intelligent. I have to, you know, I'm going to go solve difficult problems. So, you know, you basically pick the hardest problems that your company's working on uh, and give a talk about how they're so hard and and your solution and how your solution is so clever, but still could be improved. And it could be improved by you if you come work for us. Um, so that's, that's usually the type of the talk that you give. Um, and then, and then, uh, we got a bunch of resumes. Um, and then we interview, we're very strict on the interview. This is something that really matters. Um, we're pretty strict on, on our interview in terms of making, uh, making, it, uh, uh, a high bar for, for hiring. I think that's, that's something that I've learned over the years that hiring mistakes are, are very expensive. So what, what would be an example of that strictness? What is it, uh, can well, you, we do things. This is, you know, a lot of technology startups follow a very similar routine. I mean, and, and, you know, Google follows a very similar routine. It's basically, so we do two phone screens. Uh, so the first thing that we do is we, we call them. So first of all, we do a resume screen. So we look at what university they went and, you know, did they have a good GPA? Have they had good internships, et cetera? And after that, we, the, the better ones, we, we call them on the phone and we say, you know, we, we do a, a, an interview and it's usually it, because it's on the phone, it's not that difficult of a problem, but it's something, you know, some computer science problem that they have to solve, like, uh, something to the effect of like, I give you some, uh, uh, I don't know, I give you some numbers in some way. Can you sort them in some other way by only doing this type of operation or something like that? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you, you give a problem. I uh, usually, we do it through, uh, uh, you know, Google docs. So they have to write their solution so that we can watch it while they're writing their solution. Yeah. That makes uh, sense. So we do that. We do two of these phone screens. So if they pass the first one, we do a second one. Um, and then after that, we bring them on site and then we do, uh, usually four, four different interviews on site where we, you know, some of them, they have to solve some problems on the board. And these are problems of the form. I don't know. Um, this kind of logic type problems that are related to computer science. Um, and, uh, and then, and then afterwards they have to, um, do a pair programming with one of our, with one of our engineers. So they sit there and actually try to fix a bug that an actual, an actual bug that, you know, it's usually the same bug, but an actual bug that has occurred at Duolingo, they have to, they have to fix it. Now, so pair programming, uh, 
for those who aren't familiar, it's often talked about as a great way to learn how to code or to get yeah. employees up to speed, right? So yeah. you have Pivotal Labs and other companies like this that can bring on, um, say, coders who know one language and get them up to speed in the language you need them to be proficient with in a startup and do so very quickly uh, for, uh-huh. and help them to build prototypes and so on. But in this case, you're using it to to vet someone. So you have to, you have an, one of your engineers sitting at a computer and then you have someone else sitting right next to them and what are they doing? Well, usually we let the, the interviewee um, drive. I mean, they're the ones using the computer. Right. And so uh, our engineer is usually helping them, you know, of the formula. Oh, you know, because they're because they're navigating our code base. So our engineer is usually telling them, oh, you know, go, go, go to this directory to open that file. Uh, that's where that would be. Um, and then they essentially have to track down a bug and solve it, uh, you know, fix it. Got that's it. That's usually what, what they do. And, and it, it is amazing how much you find out from from doing that for just 45 minutes. And uh, do you then take people for any additional test drive? For instance, uh, Matt Mullenweg's been on the podcast, so one of the lead developers of WordPress and now CEO of Automatic. And when they hire people for Automatic, which is fully distributed, they do uh, text or IM. Well, I guess it would probably be IM interview as opposed to voice. And uh-huh. then they'll audition them for two weeks. And I think the standard rate is something like $25 an hour, whether it's a CFO or <laughs> just <Right>. a, <laughs> an entry level customer service person or a coder. Uh, and they just, they do it in off hours, you know, at night or, or on the weekends. But do you audition people after that? Or is that? We uh, don't. That's oh. it. After, after we do two phone screens and, and four on-site interviews, we are, we are done. Um, you go. we've, we've, uh, you know, we've we've tried the auditioning. At, uh, at first, we were kind of doing that, but we found that a lot of people would, uh, you know, would tell us, "Well, you know, um, I have an offer from Google." Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm not going to put up with this circus. <laughs> I'm not going to put up with two weeks of crap from you. I'm also in school, uh, you know, especially for fresh grads, right? I'm also in school, and I have like finals coming, and so we found that they just were pretty. Uh, they they were they were not that open to that. Got it. I'm saying got it a lot today. I guess that's my catchphrase. It's like my uh, Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond for this conversation. Well, but it's got it. <laughs> I also never realized that Tim Allen did that voice for those people who are wondering who Buzz Lightyear's voice is actually attributed to in, li- in real life. But I digress. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you were advising, say, a very bright uh, young would-be entrepreneur who is going to be starting their first tech company could be any type of company, but if if you could just give them two or three books or resources, uh, to, to help increase the likelihood of them succeeding, what would you point them to? Let's see. I, so I like, okay. I like, um, uh, uh, Peter Thiel's book, uh, zero to one, zero to one. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, you know, one that I, I've re- recently started really liking, um, I, I guess I like it because it's it's kind of, it makes me feel good because they have this very similar problems that I've had. Um, it's the the startup podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gimlet Media guys. Yeah, I, I love it uh, I, because they, you know, it's a lot of times it's just like, yep, we had that exact same problem. And I love the fact that you guys completely fumbled it. And so did we. And, and now I feel better about myself. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I think it, 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 at the very least makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so zero to one startup, uh, the startup podcast, which everybody can find on iTunes or 
in a podcast player. Uh, I like Overcast quite a lot for listening. Um, what else might you point um, them to? I like this one, but it's not for very new entrepreneurs. I found it very useful. I, I read. I actually. I well, I didn't really read it. I don't read books. I just listen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading. I, I don't know for some reason. I I just stopped reading like ten years ago. Um, but, but I I quote unquote read um, twice. Uh, the hard thing about hard things. Uh, right. Uh, That's uh, uh, Hor- Ben Horowitz. Uh, ben Horowitz. Yeah. yeah. The first time I found it not very useful. Because it just was stuff that was just not, it was not applicable to me because, uh, you know, I, I was not at the time running a company really. And, and I had never really run a company, you know, recapture only reached, you know, like nine people. So that, that was it. And whereas, uh, he talks about problems of, you know, companies with hundreds of people. Um, but now I recently read it again, uh, you know, in the last like month or so. Uh, and it is amazing how much good advice there is in there. Um, for somebody that is running a company of, of around, you know, in, in our case, 60 employees, uh, the, it is amazing. I, I, I was, I, I, I loved it. So what, what would the profile be of an, the entrepreneur for whom that book would be appropriate or most useful? Do you think? I think somebody that is running a company that has already, you know, more than like 30 people is my guess. Um, that, that, that's my sense. Yeah. The hard thing about hard things has been recommended to me, maybe not within this podcast, but certainly offline by at least four or five of the best, uh, tech entrepreneurs who have been on this podcast. It's come up repeatedly. I mean, but these are people who are also running as by definition, larger organizations. Uh, the zero to one book by Peter Thiel is Fantastic. And I would also encourage people who are interested in digging even deeper to try to track down the Blake Masters transcriptions or notes from the original class that was taught at Stanford, which formed the basis for that book, because Peter goes very, very deep into specific hiring decisions and equity and negotiating term sheets and things like this. He gets very, very granular on things that were not put into the book because they wouldn't be applicable to a very broad audience necessarily. Would it seemed too inside baseball, but the original class notes are just fantastic. And he brings in guest lecturers and so on, who are a lot of the icons in Silicon Valley that the both of us would recognize. Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley has this this vaunted mythological place in the minds of a lot of people. It's you know the Mount Olympus of, of tech, the epicenter of all good things related to innovation, etc. Yep. Why have you chosen to remain in Pittsburgh and what have the benefits, the pros and cons been of staying there as opposed to going to SF or New York City? Listen, Pittsburgh is absolutely the best place on earth. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sell kidding, me. I I'm need kidding. you. <laughs> uh, no, I actually, I like Pittsburgh quite a bit. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I, it is really unclear. One of our, um, one of our board members, um, Bing Gordon from, from Kleiner Perkins, um, very, he visited very us, uh, and he said to me, um, would you start Duolingo in Pittsburgh again? Um, and I said to him, honestly, I don't know. Um, uh, I, well, uh, you know, his answer at least made me feel good. He said, well, you're, you know, you're, you're like in the 99th percentile of startups. So, uh, seems things seem to have worked out for you. So, uh, you know, you're fine. 
but it's at first, you know, we, we started here because I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon and Carnegie Mellon's a, you know, a top school for computer science. Um, and we were around here and we kind of just never left. Um, and, and what we, what we tell ourselves is, uh, and I think it's true. Um, it has been a, a pretty awesome recruiting tool, uh, for engineers. We've been able to recruit really amazing engineers. Um, you know, as a company, we, when we were only 20 people, we had like eight people with eight people with, with PhDs in computer science, um, which is a pretty, pretty hard thing to do anywhere else, including Silicon Valley. Um, so I think we've had a great time recruiting engineers. I think for that, it's been very helpful. I think it's also been very helpful um, in terms of uh, uh, being able to, you know, we're, we're not affected so much. Uh, you know, one of the things that I notice about Silicon Valley is uh, there's, there's definitely uh, trends that happen that come and go. Um, and we're not affected too much by that. And, and I like that. That we're, you know, we're kind of, we're, we know what we're doing with Duolingo. We know what, what kind of company we're creating and, uh, we're sticking to it. And, you know, it's not the case that next time there is the next whatever, um, yik yak or whatever app is the next, uh, awesomest thing. You're, um, you're, you're changing your whole product to look more like theirs. Right. Yeah. You're outside uh, of the, the echo chamber. Yeah. And, and that I think that has been helpful for us. And now, can I tell you for a fact that we would have been less successful in Silicon Valley? I have no idea. Um, and I, and, and another thing is we're now really starting. I think up until now, I don't think it has been a problem that we've been in Pittsburgh, but we're now starting to have a couple of issues. Um, one of them is, uh, in terms of the infrastructure of things. So for example, finding office space here was a pain in the ass because we, um, ev- everybody here wants a 10 year lease. Uh, because that's who they rent to, you know, 10-year leases. And we're like, yeah, we cannot take a 10-year lease. I assure you that in 10 years, we will either have gone away or, you know, massively grown, but we're not going to be the same size. Um, so, the, you know, the infrastructure here is just not not the same. Uh, and the other thing that we're having uh, a harder time is with people with previous startup experience. Uh, there's not very many here. Um it's there's Google has a pretty uh, people don't know this. Google has a pretty big office here. It's about 600 engineers. Um, and so we can hire good engineers from Google, for example, even even, uh, you know, seasoned engineers from Google. But people with previous startup experience, especially outside of engineering, there's not very many here. It's uh, I was having a chat with the uh the the founders of Shopify not too long ago because I was, I was the first advisor to Shopify in 2008 or 2009 and the, you know they IPO'd six or 12 months ago something six or nine months ago I guess and they've done very well and they're based in Ottawa Canada uh-huh. and they uh-huh. had uh, they they said it's actually been a huge gift in a way because they are the only game in town so from a recruiting yeah. standpoint not only are they the go-to tech company in a lot of respects, but on top of that, they don't have a lot of attrition because yeah. people are settled in Ottawa and they're not getting poached by Facebook, Google, Uber. They're not, they're not going into that, that bloodbath of bidding wars. So we see exactly that for us. That's great. I mean, so, you know, it's funny. We sometimes go to events, you know, a lot of times these tech events or, or sometimes our investors have events, um, 
for, for example, one of our investors is Union Square Ventures. They have these amazing... <laughs> I'll try to throw a picnic with some paper plates for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. You're, you're also one of our investors. You, you have not had us in any of your events, okay? <laughs> um, so one of, you know, Union Square Ventures, they're, they have these great events where they, they bring in everybody, uh, you know, for example, they, they have a, a, a marketing event and it's all the people that are in the portfolio companies that do marketing. Or they have a design event, and it's all the people that do design in the portfolio companies. And so we send people to all of these events, and it's pretty amazing how um, when you're talking to people, it really does seem like the average uh, tenure of a person in one of these companies, and a lot of them is like a year and a half. Like After a year and a half, it's like, oh, going to the next one. Uh, whereas for us, is I mean, people really don't leave. I mean, it's just that because we, we really are the, in terms of startups, we're not exactly the only game in town. I mean, that's unfair to say, but there, there's not very many games in town. Do you, what do you think the likelihood is that you will stay, that your, the, the, your HQ, the majority of your employees will be in Pittsburgh in say two years time? I think that's pretty high. Um, we're, we, we're, we just started, um, an office in, well, if you could call it an office, we, we just started an office with two people in San Francisco. You met one of them, Gina. I did. Um, and they're, um, they're, they're, they're there. They're working off of the Google Capital office for now, but they're, they're getting, they're getting their own office pretty soon. And I think we're going to have, I think we're probably going to have about in the next year, we're probably going to staff it with about 15 people. So, you know, it's not going to be super tiny, but it's, it's still not going to be the, the, the biggest one. And for, for those people who are not familiar with Union Square Ventures, uh, Fred Wilson, who's one of the, I think he, he's still a general partner there, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he has a fantastic blog for people interested in, in tech and uh, venture capital entrepreneurship, which is AVC. And I think it's just avc.com, if I'm not mistaken, but you could certainly Google Fred Wilson and AVC and it'll pop right up. Is How many employees did you have at ReCAPTCHA when the company was was absorbed by Google? Um, uh, it, we were between seven and eight. And so, then inside Google, we started, you know, the team grew, but that was that was it. And between that point, I assume you kind of vested in peace for a while, as they say. Uh, I mean, you had, did you remain, were you at Google for a period of time? I was at Google for, for uh, about a year and a half. Year and a half. And yep. when did and how did Duolingo get started? I mean, what were the, when did that idea start to germinate? That started right after right after the acquisition with Google. I mean, I was in a I was in a pretty good place in my life where I didn't really have to work anymore, um, and I was I, I wanted to do something that was related to education, um, and and I started you know at the same time I had a PhD student um, Severin who was my co-founder. He was my PhD student. Uh, we we went, we wanted a PhD project for him. And I thought, well, you know, I really am I'm passionate about education. Let's try to do something related to education. Uh, now, my, my views on education have always been um, very influenced by where I'm from because I'm from Guatemala. And it, it's a very poor country. Uh, now, the thing, the thing about Guatemala is uh, and, 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 and poor countries, um, a lot of people say that education is, is the thing that can bring equality to the different social classes. Uh, but I always saw it as quite the opposite. I always thought that um, uh education was actually was something that brought inequality because what happens is the people who have money uh, can buy themselves the best education in the world. 
Uh, and because of that, they remain having a lot of money, whereas the people who don't have very much money uh, barely learn how to read and write and therefore remain not having very much money. So I wanted to do something with education that would give equal access to everybody. That's, that's what I wanted. Uh, now, education is very general. Uh, so we decided to, uh, to, to concentrate on just one type of education, which is learning a foreign language, which, you know, if you're in the U.S., it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But outside of the U.S. or generally outside of English speaking countries, this is a, a massive deal. Uh, generally learning English. Um, there's there's 1.2 billion people in the world learning a foreign language. Um, and so, um, you know, we decided that, that we wanted to do something to, to teach foreign languages. But it, this is a funny market, the, the language learning market. Um, the majority of the people learning a foreign language, 800 million of them, um, satisfy three properties. First of all, they're learning English. Second, the reason they're learning English is to get a job or a better job. And third, they're of low socioeconomic conditions. Okay, so most people are trying to learn English in order to get out of poverty. That's that's the people who are learning a language. But at the same time, most of the ways there are to learn a language are usually very expensive. Like, well, especially before Duolingo came around, like Rosetta Stone, for example, think about that. It's like between $500 and $1,000. So, the, you know, this was kind of the irony. It seemed like you needed 1000 bucks in order to get out of poverty. Um, and so we thought we could do better. And, and that was the idea with Duolingo was to give a, a 100% free way to learn languages. That's what we wanted to do. And uh, how did you develop the idea or the model? I mean, what, what did those early conversations look like? Yeah, at first we started thinking, well, if it's going to be free, we got to figure out a way to pay for it. Um, <laughs> good, a good idea. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we hadn't discovered what we now know, which is you can always raise more VC funding. I'm kidding. That's not a, <laughs> it's not a good way to pay for things. Um, yeah, yeah, eventually mom and dad, i.e. VCs on the board, stop giving you allowance. Well, you know, <laughs> somebody on our board said, said a good, a, a good thing. Uh, he said, eventually you can't find a bigger fool. <laughs> Right, right. I think that's about about right. Um, so, yeah, that's not our business model. Uh, but at first, we had a business model which we've actually moved away from. It was a, a I thought, a pretty clever business model. But uh, we, we that, there are reasons for which we've moved away from, which I, which I'll tell you about. But our our first business model that we thought was okay. Here's what we're gonna do. Uh, much like the idea with reCAPTCHA, where as people are typing captures, we're actually capturing some value. Uh, from them, could we do the same for for le- learning a language? Could we get people to uh, give us something of value while they're learning a language? And what we thought uh, the answer to that was yes, and and we thought we could get people to help us translate stuff while they were learning a language. So the the idea, and this still works, and, and, and we're still doing it. So the idea is the following. After, you know, after somebody would learn a lesson on Duolingo, they would learn, you know, a lesson about food, like they would learn all the food words. Um, at the end, we would say, hey, if you want to practice um, the things you just learned, uh, here's this document that comes from the web that is related to what you just learned. So in this case, it may be like a food blog or something. And we would say uh, it's in the language you're learning. Do you want to help us translate it to your native language to practice? Um, and, uh, what would happen is some people said yes to that. And, uh, a number of people would get the same document and they would kind of all translate it together, uh, kind of edit each other's translations, et cetera. And they were translating from the language they were learning to their native language. And at the end, we would come up with one translation and that was a translation. And in some of the cases, those documents came from, for example, CNN, CNN is one of our clients. 
They wrote all their news in English. They sent it to us. And we had our people who were learning English translated into their native languages. And then we would send the translations back to CNN and CNN would pay us for having translated their documents. This is still, this is still going on. CNN is still one of our clients. Uh, so it's been about two years and they're still at it. So that means the, the quality of the translations is high enough that they haven't fired us. Um, so that was the business model. And it was a pretty good business model, but we moved away from it because we realized the more we, the more we worked on it, the more we realized we, we started work turning into a translations company as opposed to an education company. So, because that's kind of where the money came from. So we started just more and more developing translation and translation and not working on the education side. And at the same time, we realized that also translation is a crappy business to be in because it's, um, it's kind of a race to the bottom. Uh, how much you, you charge for translations. Uh, you know, if you can do it for one cent a word, you can always find somebody else that can do it for half a cent a word. Uh, so we decided to move willing, away from that. Or willing to try for half a cent a word. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, so we decided to move away from that. Um, uh, and now we have different business models, but, but that was our original one. Can you elaborate on the other business models? Sure. We have two now. Um, the, the main one, the one that we were, we've been at it for longer, um, it's uh, English language certification. Well, generally language certification, but what matters here is English. Um, so the idea is this. There are just to sorry not, not to interrupt, but uh, yeah. but I will briefly because I think that to, to put in perspective for native English speakers who might not get the magnitude, and maybe you can you can call BS on this or confirm. But I've heard, for instance, that in China alone, I mean, we could talk about a place like Brazil also, but there are more people learning English in China than all the native speakers of English combined. Is yes, some, there there are four hundred million people learning English in China. Yeah, so. For those people listening, big market. <laughs> That's yeah, just, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> learning English is humongous, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is, it. for teaching languages, that is what you want to teach. I mean, there are, you know, it's funny, there are companies in China that are venture funded, that are own, that only teach English and that only teach English to hotel employees. That is, a big enough market for a startup. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how big the market is in, in China for learning English. But so I threw you, I threw you uh, off course that you were talking about the, the certification. So, yeah. So the thing is this with certification. So, uh, uh, you know, exactly with English, um, people need to learn English, but after they've learned English, they also need to prove that they know English in particular to get a job or to go to school, et cetera. Um, so about, but two years ago, we started getting a lot of emails like that with people saying, Thank you for teaching me English. I, um, uh, you know, I, I did not have the resources to, 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 to pay for, for English software or for classes or something. And now I can learn it because of Duolingo. But now I have a problem. I need a certificate that says that I know English because I need to apply for a university or I need to uh, get a job, et cetera. And they're requiring some sort of certificate that says that I know English. Um, and, and so we thought, well, Let's look into this whole certifying that people know English, this whole market. It turns out this is a humongous market. It's about $15 billion a year are spent on people certifying that they know English. Uh, you use that, for example, if you want to, if you're from outside of the U.S. and you want to apply to uh, enroll in a U.S. university, you have to take a test that proves that you speak English. A test is called the TOEFL. Um, if you want to get a job at a multinational corporation in, uh, in, in a non-English speaking country, you usually have to take a test to prove that you know English. If you want to get a work visa in the UK, 
you have to take a test that proves that you know English. So there's these standardized tests. Uh, in total, $15 billion are spent a year on these tests. They're all very similar to each other. There's there's a few of them. There's like three or four that are big one that are the big ones. Um, they the way this process works is you have to it's it, it's kind of similar to taking the SAT. You have to take this test. Um, you pay about 250 bucks for it. Uh, you usually have to take it. Well, you always have to take it at a testing center. So you have to go to a a place to take the test. Um, because of that, you usually have to make an appointment. You know, several weeks in advance. And so several weeks in advance, you make an appointment, you pay 250 bucks, you go somewhere, you take a test and you get your results another maybe four weeks later. Uh, so at the end, you spent eight weeks, uh, you spent 250 bucks and uh, you have a certificate that says, you know, this is your test score for English. And that's this, this measures your English proficiency now. So that's the process. Um, and this sounds kind of annoying, but it's actually way worse because most of the people that are taking this are uh, in developing countries. Now there, it, the thing is 250 bucks in a developing country is a month's salary. Uh, also, the testing centers are not in every city. They're just in certain cities. So you have to travel to take a test to prove that you know English. Right. And just to also add some color to that, I mean, traveling might not be – it's not hopping on a bus and going 20 minutes necessarily. Right? Like no, no, if no. you're it's, in in a vill- like a Shipibo village in Peru and you're trying to get to Lima, you know, it's yep. – Several hours. Yeah. And it also costs you money. Um, so this actually happened to me when I was applying to come to school here in the U.S. I had to take this test uh, to prove that I knew English. Um, what happened is Guatemala ran out of tests. They, 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 there were no more seats for that year uh, in the testing centers. So I had to fly to the neighboring country of El Salvador to take the test. So for me, this, this cost a thousand bucks and, uh, and it involved a, a trip outside of the country. Uh, so that, we thought, you know, when we saw that, we thought, man, we can do a lot better than that. Uh, that's that's really ridiculous. Uh, it seems like uh, technology from 100 years ago. Um, so we launched this thing called the Duolingo Test Center, which is basically a, an app. Uh, it's also a website that helps you certify your knowledge of English. Um, and the idea is that it's only $20. It's not $250. And also you take it from a device. You don't have to go to somewhere to take it. So you don't have to go to a testing center. Um, and now the, the, the tricky thing here was that when, you know, the reason people have to go to a testing center to, to take the test is to make sure that they're not cheating. Um, because you know, you, for example, instead of you, you could, for example, send your cousin to take your the test instead of you, or you could show up with a bunch of books. Um, so the way we, you know, we had to prevent cheating with our test, uh, and the way we've decided to prevent cheating is, uh, or we're able to do it is, um, when, when you're taking the test from your phone, we actually turn on the front-facing camera and the microphone, and we actually record you taking the test. So we record your face and, and uh, the ambient noise and everything, and then a real human proctor watches you take the test and makes sure that you were not cheating and you were actually looking at the screen, et cetera. Uh, and it turns out this works. That's very cool. And um, how how hard has it been? Or how? Let me ask a better question. How have you been able to get buy-in from companies to accept this? Yeah, test? that's been that's the hardest part, probably. The, you know, the technology we, we we figure that out relatively easily. The, the 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 hardest part has been getting you know getting accepted by uh, universities and companies, etc. But we're we're getting we're making good traction. Um, we're let's see. Um, we so 
in terms of universities, so some departments of Harvard University take it, some departments of Carnegie Mellon University are starting to take it, uh, some departments of the Max Planck Institute in Germany are starting to take it, and this year we're going to run a study with 12 uh, very well-known name brand universities here in the U.S., like you know Yale and uh, that, that type of name. Um, uh, so 12 of them are going to be running a study where all of their applicants uh, are going to be... Um, taking both the standard test that they're taking and our test. And the idea is they're going to look at the correlation between that. And if it's high enough, then all these universities are also going to start accepting our test uh, in addition to the other one. Uh, so we're doing that. Um, we've been also doing a lot of work with different companies. So Uber, for example, is a good one. Um, they have, uh, in, in many countries, they're starting to roll out a, a new Uber service called Uber English, which is, uh, you know, your driver speaks English. Um, and we're, we have a partnership with them where the idea is that in order to certify that the drivers, um, speak English, they have to take the Duolingo test. Uh, so we're, we're doing a few of these companies and, and the way, the way we're, we're getting it done is basically by, by going at first to kind of the blue chip places, you know, the, 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 the Harvard's of the world. And, you know, after that, the sale is much easier because you say, look, it's, it's good enough for Harvard. Um, it probably should be good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, that uh, the H the H name works in a lot of places. MIT yeah, yeah. too. The very powerful in Asia. <laughs> yep. The uh, the so we've been talking about English. What other languages are currently available on Duolingo for people to learn for English oh, speakers to learn? Uh, there's a bunch. Um, I, you know, I used to know them all. Now I I don't. Uh, so you know, we have the big ones like Spanish, uh, French, German, Italian, Portuguese. We have some lesser known ones. We have like uh, Irish, Esperanto. Uh, Esperanto is a funny one. Um, uh, Danish, Swedish, um, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Turkish. We uh, we you'll you'll notice we have no Asian languages right now. Why is uh, that? Uh, it's because it's harder to teach them. We're, we're working on it, but it's just we're uh, it's, it has not been our uh, highest priority because it's kind of low ROI in the following respect. The, the, the investment is high uh, because they're actually harder to teach them. And the return is not very high because if you actually look at from for English speakers, um, for example, for English speakers of the people who are learning a language that are in English speakers, 52 percent of them are learning Spanish. Uh, 26% of them are learning French. Then the next big one is German at 6% and Chinese is somewhere at 4% or so. So, you know, it, 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 ROI is not super high and this is why we haven't done it. Um, but, but, you know, we want to do it, but a lot yeah. of my, a lot of my fans want Japanese. That's been a very common. I know ask. that's the most requested one. It's the most requested one. And it really is just, uh, we, we're on it. We're now, on it. Now, if you, when you develop the ability or the curriculum you you code the program for say english speakers to learn japanese does that uh, how much additional work is required like percentage wise to have it move in the opposite direction to teach japanese people english for instance uh yeah and, and, and does that dictate which asian language you might choose for instance i know that Korea, uh, well, China would be a, a huge market, I would imagine, for teaching English, yep. Yep. Uh, but Korea as well, right, where they have super teachers who fill up entire stadiums uh, for particular subjects. Uh, that's a lot of that's a that's a mouthful of a question. But does if if you develop it in one direction, does it does it make it easier to then teach 
in the opposite direction? Yeah, it does. And we've done that for a lot of languages. So we do already teach English to Chinese speakers. We teach English to Japanese speakers and to Korean speakers and Vietnamese speakers and Indonesian speakers. So we do teach English to most Asian, large Asian languages. Um, so that makes it easier to go the other way around. I mean, truthfully, the, the main problem that we have not yet uh, really worked on solving, it's not that it's not impossible to solve it in terms of, you know, ideas. It's just, we just haven't gotten to it. It's teaching you the writing system. Yeah. The orthography is tricky. Yeah. And and it's pretty tricky, particularly for, for the ones that don't have an alphabet. I mean, like Chinese, that is, (laughs) it's pretty tough. Uh, And, and so that's just, we just, we just, you know, we have a long list of priorities. This is somewhere in there, but it is not the highest one. I bet a lot of folks out there who would want to learn Japanese, I mean, speaking as someone who's studied a lot of Japanese and lived there, I would imagine a lot of folks who are hoping to learn Japanese are doing it for out of cultural interest. They're doing it, speaking of English speakers, or uh, conversational interest. They may not be, I would imagine if, if you gave them the choice, and maybe people can tell you, it's just at Luis Von on, on Twitter, right? Yep. Uh, so that's at L U I S V O N A H N. Uh, maybe folks who are listening can, can let Luis know, but thanks, you, thanks, if, Tim. Yeah. If, if you yeah. get, well, no, if you gave them the option, say, of j- conversational Japanese without any yeah. writing system, no hiragana, no katakana, no kanji in a year or six months or whatever it might be versus say the, the entire ball of wax, the whole nine yards with writing systems in hypothetically two or three years. I bet a lot of people would take the former. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that we've actually started. So, you know what we, what we have started doing. So we did this with Russian. Uh, so Russian, you also have to teach the alphabet. It's much yeah. easier because there's the Cyrillic. Yeah. Yeah. It's much easier though. I mean, there's only, it's only about 15 letters that are different. Uh, so you basically just have to learn 15 letters. Um, but we've started doing this. We basically have started uh, teaching romanizations, um, for people who don't want to learn the alphabet. We just romanize it. Uh, and uh, that seems to be working out relatively well. So we may end up doing that something, uh, something like that for, for Chinese, like pinyin. Um, we, we may end up doing that. Pinyin can work here. I'll throw, you know what, if I would be so happy if this happened and I think people would probably come after me with pitchforks, but there is a separate (laughs) romanization approach to Chinese that I think is actually better for Mandarin. This is how I learned it, but it's less standard, which is why most people default to pinyin. So with the pinyin, you'd have to deal with the diacritical marks, meaning Uh the the slanting lines to indicate tone, right? So in Chinese, you have four tones for people who aren't familiar. So you'd have like ma, 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 which are all different things. (laughs) And uh, so they sounded like four things of the same thing. Exactly. (laughs) And so Chinese tongue twisters are a bitch. They are crazy, but there is, there's a system called GR or, uh, so it's like, I think it was developed in Taiwan. And what's cool about that is they build the, the tone into the spelling. And so if you remember the romanization and I'm highly visual, so I remember the spelling of words, then you automatically remember the tones. And oh, so, wow. And so students uh-huh. who are taught using GR, have a, in my experience, and this is what was used at Princeton, which has a very good East Asian studies department, one of the best in the world. Uh, the, the, the retention of tones and consistency of tones of Princeton students was outstanding compared to many other schools that used pinyin. Of course, that wasn't the only difference in the pedagogy, but for instance, if you had like guo, which is country or like guo, it's like, 
past tense, kind of I have gone, you know, you'll chew go, something like that. Then you would have, and I haven't done this in so, so long, but it would be like GWO would be the second tone, guo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then first tone, guo would be GUO. And then for uh-huh. the fourth tone would be like GUOH. And that H at the end indicates it's a falling tone. Uh-huh. Uh, and I really want to resurrect and popularize this system because I feel like it's so much more effective. It's just not as common. Uh, so it's not often used. Anyway, that's my, I'll, I'll throw, throw that one. That's, one, that's one good to know. You know, sometimes when do, we do things, um, we, we, we've done some things that are a little, um, you know, kind of unexpected and we end up getting really good results. I mean, for example, we started teaching Irish, which I think a lot of people were very surprised by the fact that we launched Irish before, like, you know, I don't know, Turkish or Russian or, well, or so, Japanese. Right. So how do you justify that investment? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it was very easy was the, was the, was the point. Um, uh, the, you know, that was actually done by volunteers, uh, not by, by, not by us. Um, and we didn't have to make a single change to the app. That was just, our system just allowed it, uh, to, to just go through with the volunteer. So it was just done by volunteer. So we didn't, we didn't have to be, uh, involved almost at all. Um, so that was, that was, that, that was, uh, the reason was just because it was relatively easy. Um, but it, you know, one of the funny things is when we launched it, um, there's 94,000 native Irish speakers, but we have about a million people, uh, learning Irish on Duolingo, um, like actively. That's why. Uh, <laughs> so we're, uh, you know, we, if, if we put something there, a lot of times we can actually have a, a big impact on, on the language itself just by, just by putting it there. Huh. So Duolingo, you know, ostensibly at some point could, I could have a role, not just in preserving, but even resurrecting languages, depending. Yeah. We've thought about that. We've thought about doing, I mean, we have a few, uh, well, you know, one of the funny ones we're working on is, well, not us, but volunteers at Klingon. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's, that, that's an interesting one. Um, do you have any plan? Do volunteers have any plans for Dothraki or anything like that? Well, you know, the, a of few of those, a few of those, uh, they're, they're kind of, I think they're like copyrighted or something. Oh yeah, um, you're right. I remember I tried to do something in, uh, I spoke to the gentleman who developed Navi or the language yep. for the Navi people in Avatar, yep. Yep. which is largely based on Japanese people uh-huh. might uh, find interesting to know, but yeah, so it's, I see. So you might not have the ability. That's so stupid. Wow. I- I not not we're we, we kind of asked for permission for Dothraki and we were told uh, no and then wow. you know for, for that massive Dothraki textbook market that they want to capitalize <laughs> I, on I know we and we thought you know we probably thought we could like anyways do it but we didn't really want to get into trouble so whatever right got it yeah yeah don't really want to fight home HBO or whoever owns the copyright no, over that I I still want to watch their shows is the thing so <laughs> <laughs> uh. Now, th- this is a, a bit of a left turn, but actually, before we move on, I-, I wanted to flash back to Google for a second. But how do you know, uh, or do you know, how Duolingo compares to, say, college instruction for for any language? Yeah, we spend time. We actually have a. We spend quite a bit of time measuring how well Duolingo works. We have a. We have. We have a team that's whose job it is to do that. Um, 
the we have a lot of internal studies. Um, the one that we have that's external, uh, so done by somebody else, not Duolingo people. Um, they, what they did is they, comp- they 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 measured how 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 much people learn on Duolingo, and the way you measure how people learn is basically you do this this thing called pre and post test. So. You, you have people take a test before they start doing Duolingo, then they do Duolingo for a while, then you take then they take the, the test again, um, and then you see how much how much they improved. Um, and the, the, the measurement they got was that if you use Duolingo for 34 hours, you learn the equivalent of one semester of college, the first semester of college of um, uh, instruction in that language. Um, so that, that, that's, a that's, that's the semester. And, and usually a, uh, a semester takes a lot longer than 34 hours of active time. So that's, uh, you know, that we think that that's pretty efficient. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, and feel free to punt this if you don't want to get into it, but I've, I've had enough people ask me that I figured I would relay it. Do you, do you have any plans for allowing people to practice conversation, uh, or oral skills? Yes. Yes, we have plans. Um, it is not what you would think. Uh, everybody, uh, this is uh, everybody would like us to do this one thing, which is basically pair up our users with each other, or pair up our users with teachers of some sort, and do kind of a video, you know, like a Skype type thing. Um, a lot of people have asked this question, you know, have asked us for this. A lot of people inside the company have thought that this would be a good idea, but that is not what we're going to do. Uh, but we are going to do conversation. I, I, I think within, we've been working on this for a while and we're, we're pretty happy with where we're at. And I think we're going to, uh, you know, uh, we've been working on it mainly in terms of, you know, the hardest part has been just coming up with the, with the right way to do this. Um, and we think we have a pretty good way of doing it, uh, that we're probably going to launch in maybe, I don't know, three, four months. That's exciting. All right. Yeah. So. And it's going to be, it, 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 I'm very excited about it because it's really, I think that's the main thing that Duolingo is lacking right now. Like the ability to actually practice real conversations. Um, and I think, I think we're going to be able to, to do it pretty well. Very cool. So this is, uh, we're recording this mid January, 2016. So hopefully I guess Q2, Q3. Yeah, we're hoping, I'm hoping, so this is going to be one of those things that's going to get better over time. Uh, I, I, I think that we're going to have um, something in Q2. So let's say, you know, May-ish. Uh, but the, the, that I think every month it will just get better over time. So the next question that I've, uh, that I've been asked surprisingly often, which was, which may not be surprising to you is, Will does Duolingo have any plans, or could you foresee Duolingo uh, t- moving from teaching just languages to teaching anything? And for whatever reason, a lot of people have asked about philosophy, which I would be curious to see <laughs> actually implemented. But uh, how do you answer that question? Yes, we do have plans. Uh, we are uh, we 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 definitely have plans. The, from the beginning, our goal was to do all of education. We 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 we've stuck around to, with only languages for a while. But we do have plans. Um, the, so we're, we're on it. We are, we are, I, I can tell you, we are going to launch another app this year. Uh, I cannot tell you what the app is about. Uh, but we are definitely going to launch another one. It is not philosophy. We are, that is not the second subject that we are going to teach. Irish uh, philosophy. That's a big one. Yes. Yes. It's Irish philosophy of the 17th century. <laughs> no, it's not that. Um, but we are gonna, we are gonna launch another app this year. Um, that's for sure. 
Um, so we're we're definitely going to get into other areas of education. And and you know the way we the way we see this um, for one, where you know if you look at education, the education category of of you know either the iTunes or uh, the and you know Google Play, um, we're we're consistently. Uh, in you know, in the, the vast majority of countries, uh, we're the number one app in, in all of education, um, and so and we only teach languages. Uh, whereas I think there are many of these education apps that teach like everything basically, and uh, you know, with just languages, we've been able to do a pretty good job. So we think that this approach of uh, um, you know, not a MOOC, not a, not a video lectures, but a really kind of gamified. Uh, you know, mobile native app to teach you something. We think that that approach is a, is a pretty good approach and, and we're going to try to replicate it with other things. It's not going to look just like Duolingo. It's going to, you know, they're going to look like the, you know, each, each, each subject requires different things. I have no idea how you would teach philosophy, but uh, <laughs> I, I can give you pretty good ideas of how you would teach, you know, certain, certain areas of math, certain areas of, uh, of physics or, uh, reading and writing, uh, a lot of these things can be taught pretty well with with a with a uh, an interactive app. Can't wait to see it. I'm going to hit the rewind button to go back because I I wanted to pick up on this and it, the the story may or may not be interesting. But you mentioned you were at Google for one and a half years. Yeah. Uh, does that mean you left before you finished vesting? That is correct. Okay. So for people who can you explain how that usually works to people who aren't familiar with when when companies get acquired yeah usually when companies get acquired so when you hear of an acquisition price and this is by the way i'm going to i'm going to generalize a lot here because every deal is a little different but when you hear of an acquisition price let's say your company was acquired for 100 million bucks by a larger company you know like a google or a facebook or something usually that acquisition has uh, usually two components kind of an upfront payment uh that is some fraction of it. And then the other component is what they call a stay bonus, which is uh, basically you get it if you, you get it over time if you stick around for a while. Um, and it makes a lot of sense for companies to do this because when they acquire another company, they don't want everybody to split leave. Yeah. And especially, especially for, you know, multi-million dollar acquisitions where, you know, there's several tens of millions of dollars. And especially the founders, usually after, you know, the next day, they they see themselves sitting there, you know, with several tens of millions of bucks in, in the bank. Uh, you wouldn't want them to leave the next day. So that's why, the, you know, the, you hold out for another an, another large chunk um, that says, you know, if you stick around for one year, you get this much. If you stick around for two years, you get this much. If you stick around for three years, you get this much, et cetera. Um, what, would and, be a, what would be a typical percentage of the total payout? Uh, you know, I don't know what it, I, I can. I, I have sample size of well, I, of the, the ones that I actually have knowledge of. I have sample size of three. So, <laughs> right. and there is variance. So I don't know. I mean, uh, would it be fair to ones, say that it's often more than fifty percent? No, the um, the stay bonus is often less than fifty percent. Okay, it's from my experience, um, but not a lot less. Let's say, um, you know, this I'm just going to throw out, but it, let's say it's forty percent. Got it. Uh, but it, it, you know, I've I've heard enough variance, and this is something that gets negotiated. I mean, of course, the the uh, the startup that is being sold would like that stay bonus to be zero, and <laughs> the big company that is buying it would like that stay bonus to be 100%. And so some sort of, you know, negotiation happens. 
Um, but that, that's usually, that's usually the case. So how did you, why did you decide to leave after a year and a half? Because of Duolingo. Um, uh, it was, I, I was very excited about it. Um, and it was, it was something that was, so my student was, so I, I was at Carnegie Mellon for a while, uh, you know, as, as a professor, then I started recaptcha and i went on leave from carnegie mellon to to have this startup then i went to google and i was still on leave at carnegie, at carnegie mellon but i had a phd student severin who Severin. this whole time he was a phd student there what's his last name hacker which Best is awesome name of all time it's like harry <laughs> potter meets the computer age it's amazing it, it was crazy because when he you know the first time i met him he showed up to my office um and he said to me hi i'm severin hacker and i just looked at it with such confusion and I said, wow, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I did not make a mistake, fortunately. But yeah, he's um, so he, he was he was a PhD student while I was at Google. And in that time, I was working on as a P, it was his PhD thesis, Duolingo. But at the time, you know, we weren't really going to turn it into a company. At first, it was just really his PhD project. But then at some point, you know, I after I had been at Google for about a, a year and a half, we had a, uh, you know, we had a meeting and we thought, yeah, we see a lot of future on this. Um, let's do it. And, but in order to actually develop it, I had to leave Google. Um, I was actually quite happy at Google. I, I love Google as a company. Um, I, and, and now there are investors and I, I really love them. Um, but I, I was much more excited by this next thing. Mm-hmm. What for, for people who are using Duolingo or thinking of it, what is, have you seen any optimal usage schedule or frequency of use yeah. for Duolingo? I mean, just like uh, lifting weights or, or workout. I mean, it's yeah. it's not yes. always a more is better. Yeah. So what? here's what you need to do. 48 straight hours when you start is a winner. So do not stop for 48 hours. And you How often are you which, using it over 48 hours? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, not oh, okay. Right, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, I, actually, we see a lot of people binging when they start. That is not a good strategy. Um, so, so, so these people that when they start, you know, they go on for like several hours. Um, that's usually not a good strategy for learning anything. Um, so what we see is, is most successful. This is from our data, just kind of looking at traces. Um, we see about between 20 and 30 minutes a day, um, between, you know, at least five times a week that seems to do a pretty good job. Um, if, if you want to kind of really be serious about it. And, uh, I'm just taking a, taking a note. Do you find, are there any other type, any other tools that, uh, people use in conjunction with Duolingo to accelerate progress, uh, progress in any way? Yeah. Some people, um, so let's see, some people do flashcards of some sort. Like a, uh, maybe they use a super memo or an Anki or something like that. Right. Super memo, Anki. Some, some go old school and just flashcards. Like that's, that's me. I'm, I'm <laughs> really analog and old school. Right. Like a flashcard. <laughs> yeah. So some people do that. So, so uh, some form of flashcards is something that people do. Another thing that I've heard a lot of people complimenting it with are a couple of things. Um, podcasts in the language that they're learning. Uh, there's one that's like news in slow Spanish or something like that, that I've oh, heard. Very cool. Yeah. I've heard of a lot of people listening to that. Um, and, and movies in the language that they're learning. Those are pretty great. Um, uh, because usually, you know, if you, even if you're like watching the, you know, not like, a, a movie made originally in that language, but just watching the Hollywood blockbusters, um, those are pretty great, uh, for, for learning a language. 
Yeah, I uh, actually prefer to watch English native, uh, I mean English s- spoken movies with subtitles in my target language. Yeah, so, so that's, that's actually my preference because if you if you miss something in the written word, you can always go back and pause. If you miss it in the spoken word, but you can't discern it, just like a robot trying to read a captcha. Uh-huh. If if you don't, if you lack sort of the phonetic familiarity to pick it out of of the spoken word, then you'll oftentimes just be lost in the dark. You'll just have a gap in the understanding, right? If you're, yeah, if you're watching, love- if if you're trying to watch a movie in Mandarin, for instance, with English subtitles and you miss a sentence, you might just be screwed. Whereas vice versa, you could watch Die Hard <laughs> with <Right>. Mandarin <laughs> subtitles that maybe not the best example since you have to learn the, the characters, but say Spanish subtitles. And that's actually how I, that's how I raise my languages from the dead when I'm going to travel. I'll spend two or three weeks each night watching a film with subtitles in my target language. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that, I think that's that's pretty good. I mean, and uh, we've uh, yeah, we we hear of people doing that a lot of you know, some 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 sort of strategy with movie subtitles. And uh, for for people who want other tips on language learning, uh, highly I've I've written a lot about this, and obviously I'm a fan of of Duolingo. But uh, you could search. Uh, just language learning in my name. Uh, also, if you go to fourhourblog.com, that's that's my blog and search. Uh, Benny Lewis is another one. There's actually an entire yep. topic category, which is just language learning, if you really want to dig into all sorts of little tips and tricks. Uh, let me shift gears just a little bit. Actually, complimentary question. Do you have any other tips for how to best learn languages any other recommendations so this is this is a, a recommendation but it's really hard i i, I just it, it i'll tell you what it is it's really hard and we've really noticed this um the people that we've noticed are best at learning a language are usually not because they're smarter not because they're anything it's really just that they have no trouble sounding stupid uh and so they just speak uh, and I think that that, it, you know, if you're able to get yourself to just, uh, say stuff, uh, and speak it, I think that that, it, that is, that makes a huge difference because those people are just getting way more practice. So what happens is, you know, the, when they start, they're gonna, they're gonna sound kooky, of course, but, you know, over time, they're just gonna get way more practice than the quiet person who is waiting until it's, they're perfect to speak. And that's just gonna take a really long time. Uh, I, I say it's hard because that really depends a lot on your personality. And there's just some people that just can't do that. Um, but, but if you can just get yourself to speak, I mean, this is, for example, Benny Lewis, this is, I think that's one of the reasons he's so good is he just, he just starts speaking. Yeah. Uh, and I think that a way to deliberately do that, if your personality does not, is not predisposed to being the class clown, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, is to, this is what I do is, cause I'm naturally, people wouldn't guess this perhaps, but I'm very naturally introverted. You know, Myers Briggs is INTJ. I spent a lot of time alone recharging and it's, it is not actually natural for me to kind of uh, be run around being the, the, the class clown or life of the party, kind of making a fool of myself. I do make a fool of myself accidentally a lot, but (laughs) in foreign languages, I will go out of my way in the beginning to learn a few expressions that locals find funny. Right. And 
Right. Once you get them laughing, you feel less inhibited because the entire interaction is less serious, right? So that's and, a really good trick. That's and, a really good and trick. And another way, another way you can make it even funnier is if you have a weird regional expression. So, for instance, in Argentina, if somebody gives you a compliment, you can say "mentime que me gusta," "mentime que me gusta," and they get all excited <laughs> and they're like, "Lie to me because I like it. Lie to me, I love it." You know? Ah, uh, yeah, they get excited because they're like, "Oh man, that's really regional." Oh uh, yeah, and and people find it so weird. Especially because it's Argentine Spanish, right? So right. the, the menti, menti is the like, command yep. form is really weird. And, um, but I use that and it breaks the ice with any Spanish speaker. They're like, what? Like this guy looks like he's from American History X and he's using weird <laughs> Argentine like slang. Or I'll be like, yeah, soy argentino trucho. And, okay, like, le vamos a hacer? You know? and they're like, what the hell? Like, where are you? What is your story? <laughs> Uh, but you can do that. A very easy way to do that is to find some funny proverbs. And you have to make sure that people actually use them. Yeah, not uh, like from 50 years ago. Right? Not Yeah, not from like 50 years ago or like the equivalent of Middle English and Japanese because people are just going to be confused. But, you know, the the, the expressions like sarumo uh, kikarochir, right? So monkeys also fall from trees. It's kind of like no matter how good you are, you still stumble, right? That's a Japanese expression. So you can pick up okay. like one or two of these in German or whatever it might be. Like, uh, there's a good one in German, like, even the devil eats flies, which is a funny one, uh, which is sort of uh, like desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> and, uh, people just love it. It gets them to laugh a little bit because it's so weird. And then the ice has been broken. So I will deliberately look for stuff like that. For instance, in, uh, I think it's in Greek where, if you're like bidding someone farewell, I kind of picked up what I understand is a very like archaic kind of Shakespearean way of doing it that is still universally understood. But you say like, Stoi panedin, Stoi panedin. And I do this like really melodramatic bow and then like walk off and people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but if I would do that at the hotel, like all automatically the person at the front desk thought I was hilarious, even though I just premeditated the whole thing. Right. And right. then you can, you feel free to experiment. So that's, that's been an approach of mine. Uh, let me ask you some questions that I like to ask all guests. When you hear the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Oh, man. Um, probably Larry Page. And why, um, and why is I, that? Well, I, you know, I, I, am, I am a huge fan of Google. I, I just think that every, everything they do, you know, they don't always succeed. But usually the approach they take, I'm like, yeah. They're smart. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I'm a huge fan. I'm not, and yeah. Is there, uh, if you had to choose, who would your second person be? Boy, um, who, who would my second choice be? Um, successful. I mean, it's the usual ones. You know, my, I'm, I'm so uh, into the main, you know, mainstream culture of success in startups that it's the usual people that everybody I think thinks of. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and, um, you know, when you say the word success, that's kind of what I think. Right. Um, yeah. Elon Musk, as they say I, in Silicon Valley, the show, I've, I've, I've heard of this name. Yes. <laughs> I'm familiar. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what is the book or books that you've given most often as a gift or what, or what do you gift? If not books, all of them, you know, I, I because I don't read very much, yeah, I, I really I... just listen. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't, I, I haven't really gifted books. I mean, I recommend, I really do recommend zero to one to people. I say you should really read zero to one. Um, uh, I, 
let's see, what do I gift? Um, um, my, my gifts are, are, are usually pretty lame uh, to people. I, I give gift cards because they're, I don't have to think much about them. Uh, and I compensate by giving higher amounts of, uh, of money. I, I compensate <laughs> by that. I'm like, yeah, it's easier. just here. <laughs> Very Chinese. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you listen to any fiction? I do. Um, I do not as much. I, I, you know, I mainly kind of read uh, as well, not read, listen to, uh, nonfiction books. Um, I, I have listened to fiction, uh, just not uh, as often. Um, do you have any favorite fiction? Uh, you know, I, I used to really like, um, Borges. Yeah. Uh, Jorge I, Luis Borges. Yes. I used to really like it. Um, but I have just not really for over the last like three years, I just have not. I, I've really only listened to, you know, what I do is I, I, I listen to books, uh, while I'm working out in the mornings. That is the sole time when I listen to books and it's always just some sort of nonfiction thing. What is your workout in the mornings? It's well, <laughs> it's a crazy, some people, well, some people say I'm going to have a heart attack. Um, I basically run at absolute maximum speed that I can, which is about 9.8 miles an hour, uh, for about, 16 minutes. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that is my workout. <laughs> and now do you have a warm up lap or anything like that? Or do you just go for it? Go. You just go. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that this is recommended. <laughs> this is just what I do. And it has worked. I lost, I lost 40 pounds. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so from then I stuck with it and I, I just, I just go. It's, uh, I mainly I'm trying to be optimal with, uh, with time that I spend. Well, I don't know if it's optimal, but I'm trying to save time. So for those people who haven't, uh, heard of Jorge Luis Borges, uh, B-O-R-G-E-S, uh, highly recommend at least checking out some of his short stories. And I think there's one where he sits down at the bank of a river and meets his older self or his younger self, one of the two, and they're sitting side by side. Uh, people can find it on Google, but fantastic writer. Speaking of RGs, I believe he's Argentine. He is uh, Argentine. Yep. Do you have any favorite documentaries or movies? Um, uh, well, my favorite movie is still the matrix. I, it's, it's old school by now, but it, it is, it's just my favorite movie. I, 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 my mind was blown when I watched that. And, uh, documentaries, do you, do you watch any documentaries or do you have any? Favorites? Um, I like, you know, the one I saw relatively recently, a lot of people have seen it. I saw it's, uh, Jiro dreams of sushi. I like that yeah, a lot. Jiro dreams of sushi is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I had a chance to go to Tokyo and, uh, oh, did you eat there? Did I, you eat at his? I, I didn't eat at his restaurant. I, I ate at his younger son's restaurant, which is the mirror image of his because one of them is right-handed and one of them is left-handed. Is it really? Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. And <laughs> there was a cancellation. We ended up being the earliest table. And so I got to talk with his youngest son. I was the only Japanese speaker there because I was with a few friends who were all native English speakers with no, no Japanese. And so we sat there and I just got to talk to him for about an hour and the coolest guy ever. His, his restaurant is in Roppongi Hills. Uh-huh. I, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. I've been you, I usually don't spend a lot of time in Nopongi, but this restaurant was great. And he, we ended up really bonding well and he recommended uh, a number of restaurants in Okinawa that we ended up going to. And he's like, uh-huh. tell them I sent you. And so of course that turned into its own adventure, <laughs> uh, which was just fantastic. We went to this restaurant with, and it was in a gra- grandmother's house with three or four tables. People traveled all from all over Japan just to have a meal there. And uh, she was a uh, former radio personality, but she would dress up in traditional sort of uh, 
kimono and come out and sit at each table for like 10 minutes each and just rotate through. It was, it was amazing. Wow. Uh, really, really surreal. Uh, what $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or recent memory? Well, uh, man, you know, I don't buy much. I really just don't buy much for myself. Um, do I have, I don't know. I don't think this was, uh, under a hundred, but it was close. I, I bought a Tumi backpack that okay. really, uh, has, uh, changed my life in terms of travel. I, I, I just need it a lot. Does it have a, it has a separate compartment for the laptop and all that? Yes, that, yeah. that is well, the key is to make it so that it is easy to take out when you're going through the stupid security. Thing. Yeah, that, I need to replace my backpack for that reason. Exactly. Do you remember? Do you have it within arm's reach? Do you know which I, I do not? I do not have it within arm's reach, but it, it really is very nice that you can easily take it out and put it back in that that just makes, you know, I don't know what it is. It's not like it saves that much time, but it just makes your life a little better. It's just, I, you know, your your life is the small things repeated often, right? And if you travel enough. Yes. Oh, my God. And the security is just... Uh, <laughs> uh, yep. what, um, what time do you tend to go to bed and wake up? Um, 11.30, go to bed, uh, wake up at about 6.30. What are, the, what are the first things that you do in the morning? Like the first 30 to 60 minutes of your day, what does that look like? I wake up, I check my email. Uh, I, let's see, basically I, I open my laptop. I check my email. I check, uh, some sort of Duolingo metrics, uh, from what type of, uh, dashboard do you guys use for that? Um, we have our own dashboard that we made. It runs on top of this thing called mix panel. Um, and, uh, we have our, you know, so I, I usually open it to see the previous day, how we performed, et cetera. Um, I don't know if this is a smart move or not. I do it, but I don't know if it's a smart move because it, it really determines my mood for the first several hours. Uh, in terms of, you know, if we did well the previous day, it's like, a am I'm, I'm a happy camper. If we did not do well the previous day for some reason, like, you know, somehow traffic is a little lower than the previous, than the day before that or something, I'm not in a great mood. So I think I'm going to stop doing that. I don't think this is healthy. Uh, I do that. And then I, then I go work out for 16 minutes. Uh, and then I eat a yogurt. That's my, that's my morning routine. And then off to the office or what's after that? Yeah. Well, I shower and then I, I go to the office basically. What metrics do you pay the most attention to? And, uh, well, no end. Let's keep it to one question for a change. Um, the, so the, we pay, we pay a lot of attention to two right now. Um, one is, uh, how well people are learning the way we measure that we, we basically, some of the exercises we're giving you are, are not there for teaching. They're, they're literally, we're just testing you. And we're testing previous things just so that, you know, just to know whether we're, you know, how well we're teaching you. Um, and we do, you know, we make changes to try to make it so that you will answer these test questions, um, you know, correctly more often. So we, we pay attention to this, to, to this, you know, we have a kind of composite score of how well our users are learning. I, I pay attention to that. I, that one doesn't change that much per day. That one really only changes whenever we do an experiment and we do multiple experiments a week, but it doesn't change like that per day. The one that is less, a little less outside of our control, um, is, uh, the, the number of active users that we had the previous day, active daily uh, users. 
active and by uh, but by active i mean not they didn't just look at the website i mean they completed a lesson on duolingo um so i i, I look at that what have been your most surprising sources of users oh well um we have had well let's see um, what are what are good ones um surprising sources of users we've had um you know, sometimes we get users that we ca- we get hu- huge spikes that we cannot explain, and later we figure out that it's TV. Uh, those are, it's very funny that we cannot even see tweets about it. We see nothing, and somehow there's just a huge spike. Um, we we had a, a television a, in the U.S. or uh, outside or both outside, uh, usually outside. I mean, some in the U.S., but th- that one we can u- you can usually find on Twitter. Um, we get a lot of users on uh, St. Patrick's Day learning Irish <laughs> for one day. <laughs> they don't stick around, uh, so it, it's funny. We do see we do see that that type of thing where uh, you know this is another one which was interesting. Um, when the Paris attacks happened, uh, our French course got a bump of users uh, in the in the week after that. Makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, so that that type of thing happens. Um, what are others that are that are interesting? We get um, uh, what are what are others? Uh, well, we've been in um, we've been we th- this one's just are just interesting. We've been in uh, fashion advice magazines. <laughs> Sometimes we're there for some reason, and we get a bunch of users. Um, oh, another one was also interesting. Sean Mendes. Uh, help me out yeah exactly yeah that's the thing it it shows that you are not a 17 year old girl okay i'm guessing what snapchat (laughs) instagram youtube no he is supposedly uh the next uh justin beaver but he's clean you see that's like a shtick uh uh, he's he does have a pretty catchy song uh it's called stitches Uh, i actually had heard the song but i didn't really know who he was uh but then uh there were some people in the office who were, let's say they were female and they were younger. Uh, they all knew who he was and they were like, oh my God, I cannot believe. Uh, so he started using Duolingo and he started tweeting about it a lot. He started basically saying, you know, tweeting a lot about how he was using Duolingo and how he is uh, learning Spanish, etc. And that was, a, that was an interesting source of users. We, we got, I don't know how many users we got, but we got a good number of them from him just tweeting a lot that he was uh, learning Spanish. Um, uh, you know, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah, um, it's pretty good sampling. Do you have any uh, evening routines? Anything you do to wind down? Well, you know, I off? bought. It, well, no, I didn't buy them. Somebody gave them to me in the office. Somebody from the office heard that I was having some trouble sleeping, and they gave me these glasses that block out blue light. Are they orange? What color are they? Yeah, they're like these big orange glasses because I wear glasses, so they're going to go on top of my glasses. So I look like I'm like, you know, 90 years old. (laughs) Or ready to go to the shooting range. (laughs) Or ready. Yeah. So I put that on uh, for the last like hour of the day uh, that I'm awake. Uh, You know, I I hate to admit it because I made a lot of fun of this before <laughs> until uh, this person in my office gave, gave me the, the glasses as a gift. I, I kind of made fun of this, but it, it really does seem to work. I, I, after I started putting those on for one hour before I go to sleep, I really can sleep a lot better. Very cool. I might have to try that. The other laptop equivalent 
and it might be on uh, on uh, mobile as well. Is Flux? I don't know if you've ever. Yes, a lot of people in the office use that. Um, yeah. Flux yeah. f dot l u x for people who want to type it into their browser is very cool. Uh, it changes the the type of light or the spectrum of light that is that is emitted from your laptop. Uh, so that it it changes based on sunrise and sunset. To yeah, it's pretty cool. You know what? I, our designers started using that, and now we get cookie colors because <laughs> <laughs> oh, because they're thrown off when they're designing at <laughs> after sunset. Now, now when they, yeah, no, I'm like, I, I want to see it tomorrow morning, please. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious, actually. <laughs> Yeah, that could be really dangerous for designers. Now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, how did you guys come up with the green owl? By the way. Yeah, so that was uh, there's a story behind that. There's um we were um we were just getting started with Duolingo and and um we had hired a Canadian company to help with our branding. Um, at the time we didn't really have any designers, it's, but it's an awesome company. It's called Silver Orange. They made the Firefox logo, for example. Oh, great logo. Um, yeah, so this is a great company. Um, we loved working with them. And, uh, you know, in, in one of our first uh, meetings about the branding of the company, um, my co-founder, Severin, uh, he said, you know, I don't know much about design and I, I don't particularly care, but I'll tell you this. I hate the color green. I hate it. <laughs> and, and we all thought it would be hilarious if... <laughs> If our, our, our mascot was a green thing. And so, uh, that's, that's why it's green. It's literally, it is, we are playing a joke on our co-founder. Um, ever since then, every day of his life, he has to see this. <laughs> he shouldn't have said that. Oh. Man, that that is funny. And the owl was that the the was that it's kind of knowledge, knowledge, yeah, wisdom. Yeah, it's funny because now you know when we started, it was kind of you know we were here and knowledge, wisdom makes sense. But now that we're expanding, we, or we've expanded to the whole world, this is not true in every other country, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, are owls like bad luck in certain cultures, or I mean, you know, I, I don't know if they're bad luck, but uh, certainly in China, people are like, why an owl? <laughs> And no, actually in China, because it's green, they're like, why are you using a parrot? <laughs> a fat parrot. Yes. <laughs> this happened. That actually would kind of make sense, actually. The, the, yeah, the parrot. Yeah. Uh, that's another one of those jokes uh, that uh, I use to try to disarm people if I'm going to make a fool of myself in Spanish later. Is, is the, the, I mean, in certain Spanish-speaking cultures, people are very polite. It's kind of like Japan. I mean, if you were like, yep. I hungry, want food, please. And they're like, oh, your Spanish is so good, you know, <laughs> if that's how you sounded in Spanish. They're very polite. And... Uh, <laughs> And so my thing, you know, I would say, well, I, I'm just a really good parrot, right? So I'd just say, you know, soy un papagayo, papagayo, depending on where, if I'm in Argentina or not. And uh, so that, may, that makes sense to me, that it could be a uh -huh. parrot. Uh -huh. Have you, what have you changed your mind about in the last few years and why? Um, I, you know, that's a good question. Um. You know, probably the, the, I don't know if exactly how to phrase it, but it is way harder to build a good organization than I thought before. Um, you know, before I kind of worked at, I always worked at a, at a company or, or something that somebody else had made the culture or the organization or something. And it's so easy to find 
um, bad things about things about, about you know Pick company up, cultures or flaws when you're it's so it. easy yeah nothing's perfect and you're just like always but now that i'm the one in charge of building uh you know an organization um it is really hard and i am i am now even more impressed at the people who have built companies you know with ten thousand employees um it's just impressive how how you know, like the culture at Google still remains. Um, it's just impressive. It is astonishing uh, because it's just you know when when you're just here, you know we have sixty employees and already we see like just all kinds of issues. Um, you know, one of the standard things that people that, that startups go through, and we fortunately we went through it and it worked out well. But at the beginning, it's it's flat. Everybody has a um, uh, you know, there's no management. Nobody really has a boss. It's kind of flat. Right, there's um, no hierarchy. It's a flat right. org chart. This sounds great. This really sounds great. Um, we have, we are a flat company, etc. Unfortunately, this just does not work after a certain number of employees. Um, and you 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 get to chaos at about you know 25 employees. It starts becoming chaotic. Um, and so you have to start coming up with some sort of structure and some sort of hierarchy. And out of every startup that I've heard there is an allergy against that um, because it's like, Oh man, you know, now we're going to have managers. What's bureaucratic, next? Right? Yeah. What's next? Are we going to have to start filling out TPS reports and like, what is going on here? Um, so, but it, it, it takes a little bit of time to really convince people that this is actually worthwhile. But fortunately we've gone through this now and, and we're fine, but this was, uh, this was much harder than I thought it would be. What resources, people, books, anything, did you find, have you found helpful in thinking about building an organization? Well, this is one of the ones where um, uh, the hard thing about hard things was helpful. Um, uh, He talks a lot about building organization and and how to do that. Um, I found, uh, let's see, uh, um, in in some cases, I I found um, uh, uh, a few blogs. Um, well, oh, well, Fred Wilson's blog is um, is great, which came I, I up earlier. Yeah, AVC. Yeah, yeah. So that one was good, and 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 also our board members. I mean, we have really good board members for for Duolingo, and and we're. I've basically i've I've asked them a lot of questions. I mean, the latest one, um, our, our board member from Google Capital, uh, Layla. Uh, she's amazing. Um, she uh, she basically, I sat with her and I'm like, okay, we're going to reorganize the company. Uh, let's do it. And we basically just sat there for a few hours and came up with a, a reorg of the whole company. And, and that was that was pretty useful. I want to say uh, it was either a biography of Home Depot. Might have been both. Or it was <laughs> a little outdated now, but the making of a blockbuster, which was about Wayne Huizenga if I'm saying his name correctly, and the the building of Blockbuster when it was just the behemoth. And when it was awesome. When, it was, when awesome. it was awesome. Yeah, well, back when it was awesome. But he was very good at acquiring companies. And as he absorbed all these companies, of course, he needed to incorporate uh, all of the bits and pieces. And I, I want to say that he hired one of the top people from McDonald's, either as consultant or a full-time employee and the first thing he did when he met them is he said all right help help draw or draw the org chart for me like i want to see what the org chart looks yeah. like and that was yeah. one of the most consistent questions and i never thought 
it it didn't strike me until much later. In fact, in the last few years, how important that is. And so when I meet people who seem to have very smoothly operating companies, that's one of the first questions that I ask. If if it seems like a, a decent opportunity, so I'll just say, "What does your org chart look like? Like, draw your organization for me." Um, yeah, that's it. Is it is amazing for somebody who has never had to design an organization? It is amazing how hard that is. It's yeah. just not. It's, it's not, not. It's not intuitive. No, it's not. Uh, is there anything that you believe to be true, even though you can't prove it? Um, what is something that I believe to be true? Even I'll, I'll I'll say this. Um, I believe that it was a good choice to start Duolingo here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I can't prove that, but I believe it was a pretty good choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could put one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Yes, it would be, um, this, this, this I can answer because I've, I've thought about this. Uh, it would be a billboard right across the street from the Google office here in Pittsburgh that says we at Duolingo are hiring and yes, we can match your salary. <laughs> Google would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Google investors, but yes, that is what the billboard that I would put I, because I have thought of this. <laughs> <laughs> that seems achievable. That seems very it is. Achievable. It is very achievable. I just don't know how they would feel. There are investors and everything. Uh, I just don't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That whole that whole dynamic is something yeah, I didn't yeah. think about. Uh, you could get into some real some real trench warfare where you create the uh, you could you could get one of those billboard cars. And <laughs> park it right out front. Uh, Alice Cooper, the musician's career was launched in a way by getting one of those and having it quote break down on end quote in the middle of I think it was uh, Piccadilly Circus in London a few days before one of his concerts. For, uh, for those people who haven't seen it, I think it's just called The Legend of Shep Gordon. Uh, but the super mensch is the name of the documentary. And it was, uh, done by Mike Myers of Wayne's world uh-huh. fame about this, uh, incredible, eclectic, extremely eccentric and, and hilarious music manager, I suppose is what he would be talent manager named Shep Gordon. But, uh, yeah, I didn't think about the investor angle. That could be a little thorny. <laughs> uh, what advice, how old are you now? I am 36. 36. What did, and uh, Duolingo started how many years ago? Uh, four. Four. Okay. What advice would you give to your 30 year old self then? So that would be two years before starting Duolingo. Boy, um, when you do start Duolingo, make an Android app sooner rather than later. That would have been good advice for us to have. <laughs> is, that, is that just because of the market size or? It's crazy. I mean, we're, um, you know, that was the last app we made. So we started, well, not technically. I mean, we, we didn't make a Windows app after, but, um, we started with a website, then an iPhone app, then an Android app. Today, 55% of our traffic is Android. Um, so we should have done Android sooner. Um, I guess one piece of advice, I probably would tell myself to work less, to be honest. I think I think that I, I I would tell myself to do that because there's a there's a point of diminishing returns. Or- yeah, I've I've you know I've I've really gotten much better at this over the last year, and I think I I, I still have. This is kind of one of the things I want to do this year. It's um really be better uh, um at 
not working all the time. I, I, I actually think I am more effective, not just efficient, obviously more efficient, but also more effective uh, in general if I don't work all the time. Um, uh, and it's for a couple of reasons. One is like, personally, I just, um, I feel, uh, you know, more rested, et cetera. But actually I've realized that this is, you know, this is one of the things that is really helping me scale the company. It's, uh, you know, it used to be the case that I really was on top of everything and it actually helps when I'm not on top of things, uh, because other people really rise up. Um, and I think that that has, that, that is actually a good thing for Duolingo that I'm not working, uh, all the time. And I think that that's probably, and I should have probably done that earlier. Uh, I probably would have had a, a, a more enjoyable life too. Uh, do you think you will be able to work less by simply resolving to work less? And the reason I ask is that the <laughs> type A personalities it's not easy. It's and builders that I know no, no, no. are only able to do that if they displace work with other yes, activities. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So it's not, you can't just say like, ah, I'm going to just not, I'm just going to go home now. You, you can't quite do that. <laughs> that won't work. Um, yeah. No, you, I just have to get into something else. So, you know, it's the type of thing I've gotten more into. You know, I've gotten more into podcasts. I've gotten more into learning about different things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, to learn all kinds of different things. And I think that that's, that's something I actually want to start a separate project. That is not a company of any form. Um, at, that just to occupy myself more so during the weekends, um, so that I so that I'm really spending less time on 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 being on top of every single little thing at Duolingo. Uh, you could try indoor rock climbing. I bet in Pittsburgh they have. They one, do. One they have pretty things. awesome ones. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're so they're, much fun, and you can do bouldering because it doesn't require a belay partner, and that's just fantastic way to get I, out of I, your I, head. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. We, I, I, in fact, I was doing it quite a bit. Uh, it's uh, really great for strength. Yeah, it's outstanding. And it's also mobility, hip mobility, everything in it. And it, it requires you to do the opposite of what you do when seated at a desk or at a laptop. It, uh, yeah. it causes you to look up and arch your thoracic and use your legs. Uh, it's, it's fantastic exercise. And I'll, I'll give you a podcast recommendation also, which is uh, hardcore history. My Hardcore favorite. history? Yeah. Okay. And start with, there's a series called Wrath of the Khans, which is about Genghis Gen- Khan. Or the Genghis guy. Genghis Khan, as, <laughs> as, as Dan Carlin, the host, says. But it is amazing. And uh, you will get sucked into that. Most people do. It's just incredible. I'm writing this down. Oh, Hard it's... Yeah. When people ask me, what's your favorite podcast? I say there are a lot of good podcasts out there by far and away. No close second place. Hardcore history is my favorite. I like that. Uh, oh. That is awesome. You know, I, I liked the first season of Serial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it's impressive any way you slice it. I just yeah. the I like hardcore history because not only is it it scratches the nonfiction addiction that I have. The I mm-hmm. should be learning something useful uh-huh. voice that nags when I'm doing fiction sometimes. Uh, at this, but at the same time, you have entertainment in the form of Dan Carlin's storytelling and his right. "what if," you know, imagine if, blah blah blah, x, x y, and z. And uh, simultaneously, you're learning lessons. Uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, Genghis Khan. 
and not the, the, learned. Uh, the jeng, the jeng. In in terms of how he built and ran an organization, I mean, it's really there's a lot. There are a lot of leadership principles. And, Are an organization that consisted of like you know ten percent of the world or something like that. Oh, it's it's just <laughs> I mean uh, mind boggling. And in fact, I'm not going to mention names because these were in private conversations. They might not want to be named, but. Uh, a number of the most impressive tech icons have recommended to me a book called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World and said it was their favorite book of the last year. So that's another. Are these people really, are they trying to be the Genghis Khan of, of, of today? Uh, if, if they are in terms of dominance, then they're getting close or they already are. These are people <laughs> who are like everybody listening would know these names. <laughs> okay, that's great. Really, let's copy Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, minus the like raping and pillaging, probably a good idea. Uh, but, but, uh, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, hardcore history is a good way to, to get, keep your hands away from the keyboard maybe for a few hours. Uh, and, uh, you could listen to it while you're rock climbing. Uh, so I need a, I, I need, okay. So these are two things. Uh, what about a hobby? I really need like a hobby. Hobby. I would suggest drumming. I would suggest really? some type of drumming. Yeah. Hand, really? it, could, it could be hand drumming. It could be like a djembe. Like a why, why is that? Uh, well, and I'm projecting a little bit here personally, but drumming, it, drums are an instrument that you can have fun playing, relieve stress playing, and sound decent playing even if you suck balls. And uh, that is hugely reinforcing for someone like me who's very impatient. I don't want to sound terrible on... I see. But you, you're not talking about like the big drum set for like a rock band, No, right? you could. I mean, you could do a fi- like a five-piece, uh, which, uh-huh. which would be a, you know, a kit. Or are you like talk- you're talking about like the little little kind of ethnic thing that you... <laughs> I love that the guy from Guatemala is calling this ethnic. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> hey, listen. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, you could do something like a djembe, which is a really nice floor drum that's a hand drum nonetheless uh d-j-e-m-b-e but i think that the i think you would appreciate just knowing you uh on some level as i do i would say you should actually take a lesson with the five piece because the coordination of hands and feet just utilizes your brain in a way that you probably haven't utilized it before it's you you will feel you will feel like you have runners high or it'll, you'll have a combination of fatigue. Like you've just played a chess game or go or something like that, probably closer to go. Uh, you'll have that mental fatigue, but you'll also have a, the feeling of runners high after say an hour long session on the drums where you're using your feet to work the hi hat and the bass and hitting the snare drum and so on. It's uh, I think that is something that would be, it would give you enough reinforcement early that you, might continue to carve out time for it. So I would just prepay for, you know, five to 10 lessons with a good drum teacher. I think that would be a good hobby to try to tackle. So uh, my my objective would be to keep you off of laptops. Right. So the the rock band game is not enough for, for learning how to do this. Uh, It's, it's not (laughs) as gratifying as the crack of a, of a nice snare drum and the thump of a, of a bass. It's, uh, hard to compare just the kinesthetic feedback is i think a integral piece of the entire experience well next time we see each other i will give you a concert 
<laughs> we'll have a, an amazing drumming concert. <laughs> we'll have a uh, yeah, or you could or you could try to pick up breakdancing. We could have a breakdance battle. We could do that also. That that I assure you <laughs> will not I'm happen. Just not going to do <laughs> this, this will not happen. <laughs> Maybe locking or popping for those people who want to get into it but don't want to break their shoulders. Uh, popping and locking is not a bad way to go. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. I have just one or two more questions. Uh, and uh, let's let's go with advice to your twenty year old self. What advice would you give to your twenty year old self or twenty five? You can choose. Not thirty, but twenty year old self. Yeah, 20, um, twenty or twenty five, and you can choose, and then you can tell us where you were at the time. Oof, um, wow, that's a. Let's see, what would I have said to my? Okay, to my twenty year old self, I probably would have said. Um, Learn more about um, how to run a business in college. There's probably some good classes. I mean, when I was in college, I was just all I took was like, you know, kind of uh, either either computer science classes or English classes uh, for writing. I really liked kind of writing, um, but everything else I just I did not want to take any classes and I should have taken advantage of. I'm sure there were some great classes on how to run a business. <laughs> Um, that's, that's advice I would have given to my 20 year old self. Um, specifically, if you had to choose what aspects of running a business, uh, you know, probably just, um, generally how to be a manager. Right. I think, I think that, that, um, that I think I, I've had to learn, you know, I've had to learn over the years kind of in the through the hard way, how to be a manager. I think it's, it's been, um, you know, giving, giving somebody feedback, uh, when, especially when it's not positive is, uh, tricky. Uh, firing somebody is, is really, I've, I've learned, I now know how to do this pretty well. Uh, but I sucked the first few times I had to fire somebody. In fact, there was somebody that I had to fire like three times because they did not understand that I was trying to fire. Oh god! It, it, I was that bad. Terrible. I it, I was terrible. I've learned, uh, and really, the trick is to start the conversation by saying, "I'm going to have to let you go." Like you just start that, and <laughs> and if you do that, then there's no see. Working up to it is bad because if you start by trying to build up an argument and so that at the end you say, "And that's why I'm going to have to let you go," the problem is they start arguing midway. Like you say, "Well, you know, last week when you did that, they're like, no, that's not what happened." And then after they argue three or four of your points, your your whole your 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 whole thing is gone, and your you cannot. Lead up has like, been derailed. <laughs> it's over, and you can't. And you, you always, you know, usually you don't have as much information as they do, and so you know you're not getting all the details right. And uh, no, it's usually much better to just get it over with and then you know explain or whatever. So I, I've I've gotten much better at that. So yeah, um, classes on how to manage would have been great. Got it for your twenty-year-old self, and then twenty-five. Um, start working out. I did not start working out until I was like thirty-one, thirty-two, and that was I between ages twenty-five and thirty. I gained forty pounds, and then I lost them again at around age thirty-one, and that was uh, that was not good. 
kettlebell swings, folks. Two-handed kettlebell swings. Everybody's got time. Everybody's got space for one kettlebell. Uh, <laughs> you can <laughs> search the perfect posterior on Google, and I'm sure some torrented version of that par- of that chapter in my book will pop up. Uh, what do you think of the seven-minute workout? This is a question I have. Uh, the app that I've seen people using is this the calisthenic workout that people? The go thing. Uh, this is the thing that you search for. Like it was like in the New York Times and everything. It's just the thing that you just search for seven-minute workout where it's like some push-ups and some sit-ups and like a plank and yeah i'd have to check it out i mean i'm sure it's better it, the the best workout is the workout that you do <laughs> right so if if the seven minute workout in concept in presentation gets people to actually follow the protocol then i'm all for it i don't have a huge I don't have any real familiarity with it, but suffice to say, you don't need to exercise for a long time to get into great shape. Losing right. fat is dietary. It's dietary driven. Like if you want to lose fat, you, you lose fat in the kitchen, you build muscle in the gym. That's it. Period. End of story. And, uh, the, at least from an, an effectiveness standpoint. So I would say if it's just a time restriction, I would actually go back to kettlebell swings. I think if you do kettlebell swings, Two or three times per week, 50 to 75 repetitions, building up to doing it in a single set, taking breaks as needed in the beginning, and let's say just arbitrarily, obviously, talk to your orthopedic surgeon before you do this. <laughs> yes, so I don't, have one of those. Uh, so you don't, or your, your PT trainer, whatever. So I, I don't play a doctor on the internet, but uh, generally speaking, it, women can start with a 35 pound kettlebell, men with a 53 if they're of sort of bell curve, you know, top of the bell curve weight. And uh, if you do that, one building up to a total of say seventy five reps, and doing that Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or even Monday, Friday, if you don't uh, recover very well, you can get into incredible shape doing that, and it should not take you more than five to ten minutes to complete the entire exercise. You're done, and the the initial say ten to fifteen. Uh, kettlebell swings with two hands serve as your warm up, assuming you don't have any outstanding injuries. It's just a fantastic exercise. Uh, and there, there are videos online where I demonstrate basic technical pointers and whatnot because you want to do it correctly. Uh, but this, but, uh, you can absolutely get in great shape. Uh, they're, they're also high in, with less than 10 minutes per exercise session. Uh, let me ask you another question now that I have you here. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the best way to get a six pack? Best way to get a six pack is to lose fat that's covering them up. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, okay. And, and diet is going to be 99% of that. So, so, so really dieting. Dieting meaning not caloric restriction, although a lot of people would argue this point and say that intermittent fasting or paleo or fill in the blank, any diet is really just caloric restriction in disguise, even if they mm-hmm. don't realize it. I disagree with that. Uh, you know, a thousand calories of lard does not equal a thousand calories of uh, Coca-Cola does not equal a thousand calories of sugar. I mean, the body metabolizes and treats those substances very differently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you were to follow a paleo diet, for instance, I think this, I mean, I'm biased, but I, I do think the slow carb diet, which is in the four hour body 
is mm-hmm. designed first and foremost to have a, have a high level of compliance and convenience. And maybe you sacrifice five to 10% of the fat loss you would experience with a strict paleo diet, but it's very easy to follow even if you're traveling. Uh-huh. And yeah, this is the problem with diets and traveling. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So the slow carb diet is very easy. I mean, and uh, there are people who absolutely have six packs and eight packs after following slow carb diet and following a, a minimal effective dose of exercise like kettlebell swings. Uh, you do need a base level of musculature underneath, but we all have abs. <laughs> they're just right. covered. So that's kind of just there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're there. The rec- the, the, I guess it's what the, uh, rectus abdominis, you know, that's the six pack, uh, is there, but, uh, planks don't hurt, but the exercise is not going to burn the fat. Uh, the fat is going to go away through choose making, replacing your current default meals with better default meals. And it doesn't have to be difficult at all. Uh, and drinking enough water so that your liver is not preoccupied with dehydration is also uh, very important. Oh, really? So drinking a lot of water, that's easy. That's easy. That's easy. I mean, it's, uh, that, that's not too terribly difficult to do. And if you're following a lower refined carbohydrate, lower starch diet, uh, if you have hypertension, talk to your doctor, but I will, and this is something I picked up from Kelly Starrett, actually, who's a very famous CrossFit guy. And this, this does make a lot of sense is sprinkling a little bit of salt, just a little pinch of salt into your water. When you drink it, you won't notice the taste, but on these lower carbohydrate diets, I think it's for every, let me think about this for every gram of glycogen, meaning carbohydrate that you store, I think you can, you can hold four grams of water. So when you deplete yourself of glycogen or otherwise don't ingest a lot of carbohydrates, you tend to experience a lot of diuresis. You tend to pee a lot. You just, the water just goes straight through you. So a little bit of extra sodium will help you retain that as well, say potassium from avocados. But even avocados, people think of them as pure fat that they will like an avocado. I I'm just guessing here, but probably eight grams of carbohydrates that will knock you out of say ketosis if that's what you're trying to go for. But the, the nutshell answer is slow carb diet, kettlebell swings two or three times a week. And I think that you can get to a six pack without too much difficulty. You can definitely get to, uh, you know, 10 to 12% body fat. And for most people that will show enough abs to make them happy. Although you you can go lower if you want, just requires uh, a, a lot more fine tuning. That that's good. That's great. I'm I'm gonna change my I'm gonna change my my keg for a six pack. Uh, last question is: Do you have any ask or suggestion request for everybody listening? Oh boy, um, I don't know if I do. Um, I I don't. You know, there's the shameless plug of using Duolingo, but I other than that, I don't have anything great. <laughs> No great, no, no great, no great request for the masses. All right. Well, uh, my request then would be, can you let people know how to find you, uh, on the internet? How could they, how can they follow what you're up to? Of course, duolingo.com. Uh, and you can find Duolingo everywhere for people who want to check out the app. Uh, actually before we, uh, shit duo says, is that the Twitter handle? (laughs) Shit Duo says is a pretty awesome Twitter handle. So at Shit Duo says for people who want to get a good laugh. <laughs> Actually, I won't even explain what it is. They can just check it out. But where can people find you on uh, social and on the internet if they want to follow it? Yeah, on, on Twitter, it's uh, Luis Fonan at uh, L-U-I-S-V-O-N-A-H-N. Um, that's that's where I am on Twitter. I, I should tweet more. Um, I just did a Quora thing yesterday, so I'm, I'm pretty, uh, they have like their own version of an AMA 
on Quora now. And I just did that yesterday. So I'm, I'm recently active on Quora. Uh, you can just search for my name there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess on Facebook too, uh, slash Louise Von on, on Facebook. Perfect. Well, uh, Luis, always a pleasure. And I look forward to drumming, breakdance, battling, and uh, rock climbing next time we meet. With a six pack. I will w- show it to w- you. With a six pack. <laughs> and, uh, and thanks for making the time. All right. Excellent. Thank you. And everybody listening for links to books and so on, podcasts, blogs, and whatnot mentioned, you can go to the show notes, uh, which are available for this episode, every other episode at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>